You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. I, Tiberius Caesar, command in the name of the Senate and the people. Action! I think Caligula was one of the most seminal moments in the history of Penthouse. It's an incredible piece of history, an incredible piece of Hollywood's history. This is the kind of film that could only have been done in the 70s. It's been almost 10 years since I first became interested in Tinto Brass' original intentions for Caligula. So Tinto Brass shot the film the way he wanted it, but while he was in the midst of editing, he was suddenly dismissed, and the producer had the film edited again from scratch. I know that at least 50% of the creative process sits in that space after everything is filmed. And it was Alex's contention, and of course Tinto's belief, that the film never came to its full actualization. He just in passing happened to say, well, you know that film warehouse where all the other reels are stored? I said, what film warehouse? We called the warehouse and said, hi, my name's Kelly Holland. I own Penthouse. Do you have a warehouse space of mine? And they said, yes, and we're just about to shred 400 boxes of film reels. We are closer than ever during the past 40 years to actually release a version of the film edited in accordance with Tinto Brass plans from the 1970s. Because if you don't, I'll send you straight to hell! It will close an incredible chapter, not only with Tinto, not only with Caligula, but also with Bob Guccione. I want to see it done. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Those are some nice boots, little boots. Also back with us this week is Ms. Maitland McDonough. Always a pleasure to be here. On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we are looking at the new documentary by filmmaker Alexander Tuchinsky, Mission Caligula. It was almost four years ago that Maitland, Rob, and I got together to discuss Tinto Brass's and Bob Guccione's 1979 film Caligula. If you haven't listened to that episode, I highly suggest that you go back and listen to that before you listen to this discussion. Go ahead. We'll wait. The world has not been the same since. Rob, how would you describe Mission Caligula to people who haven't seen it, a group into which I believe 99.9% of our audience falls? Well, you know, for me, it is a great little documentary of Hope Springs Eternal for us film geeks who are constantly going, man, I wonder if that missing reel of Ambersons is around or did they find that really long version of greed or uh, that uh, that that long cut of Apocalypse Now or whatever. It's It's one of those holy grail kind of things about a much beloved children's film. So I'm, I'm very excited that, uh, they found so much new footage for the great children's film Caligula. Caligula is a movie that I have always adored in different ways over, over the decades, but I've always loved it, always been fascinated by it, and I always want to hear more about it. So to see Mission Caligula really was a dream come true that I didn't even know I had. I didn't even realize that it was possible for someone to find out so much more about what went into the making and the unmaking of Caligula than I had ever realized. So I was completely enthralled. 
So four years ago, when we talked to Alexander Tuchinsky, he had basically, I think he wrote his college thesis on Caligula, taking apart Caligula and talking about some of the things that he knew of and believed to be going on behind the scenes and what had happened to the movie and some of the different versions that were out there at the time like there was what that imperial set like i said he wrote his thesis on it. it's out there as a pdf we even linked to it on the episode and he talks about some of the stills that he's found some of the you know materials like him and other people it's not just him digging this up but that is his passion project and this documentary mission caligula is it's about 40 minutes long and it's him primarily but there are other people in it and we'll we'll talk about that in a moment primarily talking about his love of the film and then where it it has kind of landed him today and even we'll hear again shortly in an in an interview there have been things happening even since Mission Caligula has come out to give us even more hope for the future. So it's it's a it's a really interesting time in which we live and quite a a fascinating story just of this one guy liking this movie so much and going to all of these lengths in order to really help film preservation overall because there's some big discoveries that he finds. All I have to say when I was watching this was I had this echo in my head. If there's a theme to this, it's God bless the obsessives. It is people like Alexander who dig and look and look and dig and connect and write a letter and do, you know, and knock on doors of, I don't even know if people live there anymore or whatever. And things like this happen. Amazing discoveries happen. New things are discovered. Things that people thought were thrown away years ago or people or, you know, whatever is out there that are the missing links to help explain something as fascinating as, as this film. Because as Maitland says, it's one of those movies that if you're, you're a film fan, it is, um, it's, it's one of those that you watch and you go, it's really fascinating to watch and it's got these great moments. Uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It depends on which cut you're watching, as you were saying, Mike. But it's always been one of those kind of, man, you know, if only the director got his opportunity to really tell the story he wanted to tell. I, I wonder what that would be because it's kind of in there, but I, you know, I'd love to see it fleshed out a little bit more. And I think now we may actually possibly come to an opportunity because of that obsession and that to me is just thank the obsessives if you have obsessives near you who are doing this kind of research just just give them a hug because they're important well and i think i can say though i'm perhaps not quite as great an obsessive as alexander tushinsky is i completely understand where he's coming from because when i began writing about dario argento there really wasn't there was a great gap in what he had done and what had been written about him. And much of the impetus behind my master's thesis was finding out these things that people had alluded to briefly in articles, in in fan magazines, in newspaper articles, but had never really tied together into some kind of coherent vision of what Argento was doing. And, It was my good fortune then that I really had a relatively clear path there. So I could talk about his entire body of work. But 
Alexander Tushinsky took one film, one Tinto Brass film, and just dug into it with an incredible passion and obsessiveness in the best possible sense of the word, and has turned up so many things about that film, things that I, I can't get enough of it. I, I, he could not cease to amaze me with the things that he has discovered, and I'm sure it's going to continue to uncover. So I, I am in awe of him, frankly. So I kind of want to put our cards out on the table here and just, I don't think that Mission Caligula, that this documentary is going to get as much notice as the things that it brings about. It's a weird length. It's 40 minutes long. Not too many people are going to film festivals to see a 40 minute documentary these days. There's going to be a very select group of people that manage to see this thing. So that said, I'm okay ruining this for people if you guys are okay with it, because I think it's kind of like our need to talk about what this documentary talks about and some of the revelations that happen in this documentary. So I feel kind of bad ruining it for people, but I think I don't want to sound big headed, but I I have a feeling that more people will have access to this podcast than they will necessarily have access to his, his movie until there is a, proper restoration of Caligula that uses this as uses mission Caligula as the basis of either this is one of the DVD extras or is the first act of a DVD extra that goes on there because this is a fascinating story. I want to talk about it. That's one reason why I wanted you guys. I, I want to talk about this. It's amazing what, what happened with this whole thing. What I sort of see this as is ongoing reporting if that makes any sense, is that, you know, we talked to him about four years ago. He was working on this project. We were looking at different cuts of the film. And then this documentary was created specifically based on the revelations that have come forward in that time and where the film is going next. And I'm not talking about the documentary. I'm talking about Caligula, that this 40-year-old film is – possibly going somewhere that we never could have imagined. And to me, this is kind of an extended piece of uh, news reportage is basically the way I see it. I, I see it as kind of a, a, a great appetizer to a, to a feast that may be coming. So um, I don't know if you agree or not, or you, you think um, that uh, justifies our spoiling. Well, I completely agree because as both of you have said, not many people are going to see Mission Caligula, and yet anybody who cares about Caligula should. So I think what we all hope for is yet another edition of Caligula that will incorporate everything that he has uncovered about the film into the extras to the film itself. I mean, Caligula is a movie that was roundly despised when it first opened, and whose reputation is still not the Citizen Kane-style reputation, but that has been, I think, to a significant degree rehabilitated since then because it is a better film than people thought it was then. Though, of course, that's not hard because when Caligula opened, it was generally treated as, oh my God, you know, a horrifying encapsulation of the excesses of the 70s and early 80s, a porno spectacular that was only spectacular because, oh my God, we can't believe how much money was spent on it and how much publicity was put behind it because, well, you know, it's a dirty movie. And looking back 
at it now, that's clearly not what it is. It, it's not just a dirty movie. It's not just a porno movie. It is a movie that has a great deal more going on in it. So Alexander Tashinsky's work on, on that movie now is incredibly interesting because I think that people who are seriously interested in a certain kind of filmmaking of a certain era realize that, yeah, there's way more to Caligula than what people thought there was to it when it was first released. The the thing that you bring up there to me as I was watching uh, this documentary and thinking about um, how Alexander had really uncovered, and I think it's in there, but it doesn't seem to be as uh, to the fore that it appears Tinto Brass wanted it to be, is that this is ultimately he was creating, and it does make sense when you look at the original author of the script, Gore Vidal, is that it was a political satire. And the the one that I can think of in terms of, ooh, an extremity and, and all of that stuff, but kind of a little darker vision was from a few years earlier of this, would have been Pasolini Salo, you know, fellow countryman. That's more on the horror end of the spectrum um, in, a, in a classical sense of, of horror as opposed to this. But uh, I, I think in a lot of ways they might make actually kind of interesting bookends because there, there's always these whispers about these films before you see them. And I remember the first time I had ever heard of this, it was long before I was a, a film fan, was my parents had some friends who were teachers and we would go to their house and we would hang out with them and they were rather literate folks. And this was in the early eighties before we even had a VCR. And I remember my dad and, um, and Paul, the friend of his talking about this movie in sort of hushed tones and certain images and certain things that were in there. And, um, obviously this was, some early VHS release that uh, Bob Guccione had done, but they were obviously, like I said, it, it, it led these images into my head of what are they talking about? And this was before I understood sexuality. I mean, it was like six or seven, eight, maybe uh, when they were having this conversation. But like I said, it, to me, kind of like how people come to solo, it's often through a whisper campaign or, Oh, I heard that movie's horrible or, uh, you know, uh, you know, you have to take a shower after you watch it or something like that. And I think that really what Alexander's done here and then through what he's trying to actually achieve is to, to really, as you were saying, in a way, continue this reformation of, of the piece as, as a great piece of film art. I've always enjoyed those articles that people have done. I especially loved them when they would do it in uh, video watchdog where they would say, okay, well we've got all of these different versions of this one particular film. And then they would write through the versions and say, okay, you know, in Manhunter, you see this in this version and then you come to this scene and then we're going to tell you what happened in this next scene in the longer cut. And they'll kind of re-piece together what that movie could have been or might have been in its completely unexpurgated form. Now that's very similar to what Alexander did in, in his thesis and even had the benefit of occasionally having uh, images that he could put in there to kind of explain, here's what would have happened next. And that's fantastic. But it's one thing to read that kind of stuff. It's another thing to see that. And now 
through his work and through what he's been able to do, he, well, it's funny, he kind of did what Roger Ryan did uh, way back when we did the Magnificent Ambersons episode. You know, Roger Ryan had put together this version of Ambersons, which was similar to Von Stroheim's Greed or I think even versions of Metropolis, where you can watch the film and then it'll stop and give you a still image and then tell you what was going to happen at the particular point. So way back when, when we talked with Alexander, he didn't feel comfortable sharing this with us, but he had a version of Brass's Caligula that was like that, where he would have a still and he would be able to put that in there and then say, this is what's happening during this particular thing. And now that stuff is even more fascinating than the the written article. And then to take it even one step further – in this documentary, he actually shows us scene comparisons between here's this cut of it and then here's what we ended up seeing. Some of those differences are just insane. Like the one that gets me the most is that whole thing about Tiberius drinking wine. This whole thing where Peter O'Toole comes into the scene and calls for wine drinks this wine and then starts complaining about the centurion who is drunk, even though he is just soused to the gills. And then the way that they recut that in the Guccione version of it, when we'll just call it the Guccione version, the release version of it to eliminate him drinking. And just the way that they chose those shots to obfuscate what he was doing. And then, you know, he carries on with the scene. So to see those two scenes back to back is just wonderful to do that and just that kind of stuff unto itself i was floored by also the other one that i liked in there and they didn't put it back to back but i had to remember it from seeing the film so many times is the scene where uh tiberius is obviously sick and old and he's got to sign all these bills and he's stamping them you know and some of the people of rome and you know and the senate the people of rome and all this and he's just stamping them and there's a similar mirrored scene that Caligula does later, where it's almost the same cadence and same movements. So you get the idea, uh, at least in my mind, just thinking about those two scenes of this. I'm just following the old decadent man in some way that I'm I'm nothing new. I'm just following what came before me. And what I find particularly mesmerizing about both of those sequences is that in a way that you rarely get to experience with films that you're familiar with, films that you've seen in theaters, on video, on DVD, streaming in any form, is that you're getting a look behind the scenes of the decisions that make one version of a scene significantly different from another. That's a process that, by and large, if you're not actually in the film business, you're not an editor, if you're not a cinema, basically if you're not an editor, because that's where you really see this, is invisible to you. You go to the movies and you see a movie and it's a seamless whole and you don't think about the film that might have been. So to see these pieces of the film that might have been is, is really extraordinary, particularly when it's a film as controversial as, say, Caligula. There have been other films that I can think of, and the one that comes to my mind was when we did Deep Red together. And there's a cut of Deep Red that I have where um, the dialogue switches in like three different languages because they fit it together out of a German print and an English print and an Italian print just based on where the edits were made. 
And to me, that was fascinating as to, you know, why would they leave this line in, but take it out here? I mean, that's more of a small edit, but here it's, as you were saying, it's interesting to see what those decisions are. And it is very rare to get that opportunity. The only other film that I can think of that got kind of a broader release was when they found that print of Metropolis. And then they were able to insert certain pieces into it. And that really gave you an idea as well as to what they cut from the main release that most people knew versus this edit that was found. Absolutely. And for somebody, for anybody who doesn't just love movies, but loves the way movies work, who loves looking at movies and thinking about how they're put together and how one scene leads into another and how a particular piece of inflection in a piece of dialogue makes all the difference in the world. It's absolutely enthralling. And that's just one part of this documentary. That's the, the gravy on top of the quest, you know, because we, this ultimately is talking about the quest that Alexander has gone on for all of these years, which we've talked about quite a bit by now, but also like he's, he's not done with this by any stretch of the imagination, but he's reached a level. He's like at that, that point on Everest where he can look down and know that he's, he's past the point of no return, right? He's, he's closer to the top than he is to the bottom because he has made a connection. And this whole thing is just amazing. So he reached out to the CEO of Penthouse Magazine, Penthouse International, Kelly Holland, who at this point, thank goodness, Kelly Holland is a former and still wants to be, and you'll hear from her in a little bit, filmmaker. So now he has someone at Penthouse who's in charge of the whole darn thing, who understands films, filmmaking, and understands artistic integrity so that when he comes to her with his bound thesis and shows her, this is what I've worked on for all of these years, and he's just this stream of information, and his his excitement is very infectious. I'm always happy when I get to talk to him because he is so excited about everything, but when he starts to talk about Caligula, it's just this passion that he has for it and him getting her on his side and that's kind of the the real thrust of this documentary is going back and forth between alexander's side of the story and kelly's side of the story and those two coming together and when there's that meeting of the minds and they both agree that this is a very important thing she manages to move mountains for him and it's just spectacular Yes, it is. And one of the things that's spectacular about it is, as you just said, how unlikely it is that that kind of thing could happen. Because frankly, for most of the history of filmmaking, there was no huge personal commitment by the larger corporate entities that made films to specific versions and directors or writers or cinematographers' ideals of what those films should be. And of all the unlikely places to find it, finding it at Penthouse is kind of astonishing to find somebody so committed because she herself is a filmmaker to realizing another filmmaker's vision of that film. What are the odds of that? They're astronomical, frankly. And for it to happen for a film that I think is as important as I believe Caligula is, it's like, you know, you threw the dice up hundred times and came up double sixes, 75 of them. It's astonishing. Penthouse, like a lot of men's 
magazines have hit in hard times. And I and, and I think in the documentary, they talk about she had bought it from someone who had bought it from Guccione and, you know, it had kind of been lumbering along like a lot of print uh, has been. And kind of looking at the broad scope of what Penthouse has and its assets, there really is not a marquee thing that I can think of that they could go, yes, this, push this out, do something with this, and this can maybe help us in terms of everything that we have. To me, it seems like the most unlikely of uh, of assets in terms of what you would push behind it, but really probably the best known to a kind of a broader audience that isn't so interested in the history of men's magazines in that way. I also think it takes a brass set of balls to take Caligula and, and make that your flagship property because it's Caligula, for God's sake. A, a hugely notorious film, a sex film, a violent film, a film that was widely abhorred despite the fact that after its initial release, it has certainly found admirers and, and people who respect it for, for the boundaries it pushed, for the political aspects that it put within a sensationalistic story. It's still, it's, it's Caligula. It, it's not the kind of property that I think most corporate entities would want to hold up and say, hey, you know, this is something that we think is indicative of our values our ideals, our ambitions for the future. Caligula is a tough property, and I, I admire anyone in any capacity who is willing to get behind it and say, no, this really is valuable. It really is. And despite all the things you might have read or heard, it's more than you think it might be. At the same time, I, I just have this echo in my head of, of Kevin Spacey in Seven as John Doe saying, you know, if you want to get someone's attention, you just don't go up and tap them on the shoulder. You know, <laughs> you have to do something to really get them their attention. And I can see, as you were saying, um, willing to take the bet and say, yes, we've got the, the fortitude here to do this. That's going to get some attention. Oh, and, and it is. There's no question. But, you know, you're going to get bad attention along with the good attention. So you have to have the willingness to stand behind the good and brush aside the bad or address it in whatever way you feel is appropriate. Yeah, I mean, then again, at the same time, I'm the one who has been, and, and I believe Mike has agreed with me on this when we've done adult film from the 70s on the show, that I believe that they have a place in the pantheon of American film culture and should be preserved in the Library of Congress Film Archive along with everything else. So, yes, Deep Throat should be on the shelf next to Jaws. It's that important. But the uh, the powers that be and, and make these decisions uh, have yet to accept that kind of impact of these films and these types of films on our uh, collective culture and narrative and in our own history. Speaking of something like a title of Deep Throat, which obviously was the, uh, the source that brought down Nixon. And yet, I, I'm definitely the hell yeah there. I mean, look, there was a, a long period when the Pompeian frescoes were hidden behind a barrier because they were so, so obscene that despite their obvious antiquity and historical value, they were still deemed something not appropriate for the general public because, well, there were, were all of these frescoes of guys with three-foot-long dicks, and that, that was pretty dirty. And yet those frescoes are an important part of our Western cultural history. And now we recognize that. And now you can 
you know, walk on the Via Veneto and you can buy a little mosaic uh, postcard puzzle that includes those big dick images. So, I mean, I have one hanging on my bathroom wall. So so do we have to give it a couple of uh, thousand years? Is that what you're saying? Sometimes it takes a while to accommodate those ideas. But clearly, you know, if we manage to accommodate those, we can we can accommodate Caligula as a, a a piece of art, a piece of culture, a piece of cultural heritage that absolutely needs to be accommodated. That refractory period is so small between when something comes out and is trashed and, you know, is tried to, you know, people try to censor it, hide it away, those kind of things. And when it gets that reevaluation and that kind of kills me sometimes when I see people writing quote unquote thought pieces about why the Wachowskis uh, speed racer is actually a really good movie or why episode one is a fantastic film. All of these things. If those pieces of garbage can lose the stink after that short of a time, Caligula is fair game. And especially when you have so many known actors, I mean, you've got Albus Dumbledore in there, and then you've got, you know, the, the Malcolm McDowell, who's still making movies, Helen Mirren, who is sexier than ever, all of these very viable quantities inside of this film, they can market the shit out of that movie. So I don't see it having that stigma that was once attached. It might still come back out, and that might still be like the taboo way of selling it. Like, oh, here's this porn with all these great known actors to it. But I don't see it carrying that the the stink that it did in 1979, and especially if we do get to now see this Tinto Brass version, which will not have that same strange smell of that project that was taken away from Brass and then redone and given that Guccione mark. I agree that the stinking off period is probably shorter now than it used to be. On the other hand, I think that we're in a a culturally volatile time in which surprising things are more shocking to people than they used to be, by which I mean like 10 years ago, not that long ago. Uh, We are, I think, living in volatile times and times in which there is a, a cultural conservatism that is rolling up over us that I find very disturbing. It it concerns me in a big way because I think it's the gateway to a lot of even worse things. And actually, I shouldn't even say the gateway, uh, not to politicize this particular conversation even more than it is politicized. But I think that American culture right now is, is becoming complacent about things that it should not be complacent about. And that maybe what everybody needs is a great big Caligula kick in the ass (laughs) to make them realize that where we are going is a place where we've been in the past. And it's not a place that I think most of us really want to be, or or at least that I hope most of us don't want to be. And that's where I would say you could see as the great tie-in to Pasolini's film was obviously his commentary on the fall of the last days of fascist Italy. But he was also commenting on the rise of fascism in the mid-70s in Italy as well. 
and how it never really left. And, uh, so in that, according to some, um, depending on which theory, uh, you follow in terms of his death led to his, uh, murder on the street. So, um, that was one of the things that I wrote down is, you know, a, a satire of power sounds great for our, uh, authoritarian times that we're seeing in many parts of the world, uh, especially in the Eastern European area, places like Hungary and Poland. And, and then, um, you know, it appears that, uh, someone's at least trying to do a similar to us, uh, here in the good old U.S. of A. Again, I don't want to overtly politicize this conversation, but I don't think that we have to look as far as Eastern Europe to see a very alarming increase in a willingness to accept an authoritarian view of the way society should work. And I find that, frankly, deeply terrifying. I'm, I'm, I'm very scared, <laughs> to be honest, by a lot of things that... I read when all I do is open my email and see you know the AOL news alerts frankly it's it's deeply disturbing to me and I I think it's something that we ignore at our peril because the idea that it can't happen here is not an idea that it's good to cling to because it can anything can happen anywhere if if tomorrow the president wanted to come to someone's wedding party and do what Caligula did to that wedding couple, um, you know, it used to be I couldn't imagine something like that. But now, these days, yeah, where's this Crisco? Yeah, exactly. I, 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 yes, I can. And yes, it's very disturbing. So I, I think in that way, Caligula really is a film for our times and a film that it's a film whose provocations are not, you know, a pate le bourgeois <laughs> provocations. They really are. You, all of you, probably should sit up and take notice because it can happen here. So we've made a lot of references to this, but we haven't come out and directly said it. Part of this documentary, part of Mission Caligula, is the discovery of all of the original materials for the film, which just sounds crazy me even saying that out loud and then to find the circumstances around them finding all of these original materials that they were in my mind it was like they were ready to you know it's 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 the the governor calling the prison when the the prisoner is strapped down in the electric chair and calling off the execution In my mind, I pictured that, though I doubt it was that close, but it sounds like it was really freaking close to the warehouse where all of these materials were, just getting ready to chuck them in the dumpster, burn them, throw them out, landfill them, whatever it was, to just get them out of there, and miraculously, they were saved almost at the last minute, and to to hear that story, it just took my breath away. So this this documentary, this little documentary by Alexander Tuchinsky, made me gasp quite a few times when I actually got to see the footage and when I heard the lengths that they went to to get it and how close it was to just never existing anymore. Well, you know, to me, yes, that was breathtaking, but it reminded me of of 
interviews that I was doing back in the, I would say mid eighties with people like Bill Lustig, who, whatever you may think of his output as a filmmaker has been for decades, a really staunch proponent of film preservation and his stories of, of finding the original elements of, of movies like, uh, um, man, uh, man eater and realizing that they were about to be dumped someplace. I mean, it can, it goes back to, um, Witchfinder general, I think, uh, whose original elements were dumped underneath a freeway because they were just used as filler to, before they, they poured gravel and then blacktop on top of it because nobody wanted to preserve those elements because it was expensive. It required putting them into con, you know, climate controlled spaces and paying the rent to keep them there. And most film companies just weren't willing to do it. Their feeling was, who cares? It was Bill Lustig who said, yeah, companies told me that, well, you know, we have video masters of them. So why do we need to keep the original negatives and internegatives? We've got a video master. We, we don't need that stuff. Ugh. And that's a huge part of the history of why so many film elements have been lost. Because somebody said, well, holy cow, we're spending X number of dollars every month to preserve these things in a refrigerated environment. Why do we care? And enormous pieces of film history get lost that way. I mean, again, kudos to Bill Lustig, who was somebody who very early on said, yeah, you may not think this is an important movie, but let's save these elements because who knows what people are going to think of this movie in the future. The thing that was fascinating, you were talking about um, low-budget movies in the early 80s on video. It was a few years ago, there was an article, and I believe it was Yale, had gone out of their way to go out and collect all of these things and put them in an archive. Now, people would say, well, why do you want these cheapy horror films from the early 80s? You know, I mean, a lot of that stuff we saw on late night TV or up all night or whatever, you know, some of them are very good or whatever. It's much the same way that we look at the 1950s science fiction films and go, well, yeah, it's about this, but really it's about this. You know, it's about what's going on in the culture at the time. And a lot of times cheap horror movies or exploitation film or whatever is a lot closer to the ground. It's cheaper. It's done faster. And, you know, a lot of the stories sometimes are some sort of derivative of what's coming off uh, newspaper headlines um, and can tell you a lot more about what's going on in a culture at that period than the overculture, I would say, the big films uh, that the studios are putting out. And this is a another debate we can have you know, on some other show, but I remember, uh, this year someone's, uh, was get out, get out won the screenplay for Oscar. And then the, uh, the best picture, I'm sorry, it, it, it fails me when it comes to that. But I said to him, I said, you know, if you look back at some of the films that won best picture, how many people are dying to see the English patient right now? So if, if you look at, you know, sort of what the overculture gives you, Sometimes the overculture is not the best read of the culture. It is the exploitation film. It is the cheap horror film. It is uh, the independent cinema that gives you a real solid idea of the flavor of the times in which it was created. Right. Look, how happy are we that we have Detour? Detour wasn't a big movie. It wasn't an expensive movie. It wasn't a prestige movie. And yet Detour is an astonishing film that says so much more about the 
time in which it was made, then I would say most of the prestige pictures of that era, because it was close to the ground. It was made without a lot of oversight. It was made by people who just saw a story that somehow resonated with them that had to do with the culture that they were living in as a whole. And we can look at Detour now and say, holy, holy moly, that's a powerful little movie in a way that you might not say that of best years of our lives. That's a good movie, and, but it doesn't have that visceral resonance that Detour has. Or Decoy, a movie like Decoy, which is a super cheap movie. You look at that and you feel like, wow, that is a dispatch from um, a, you know, a highway restroom in 1947. And holy cow, that is something. <laughs> So let's go ahead and take a break. We're going to play a pair of interviews. The first is with our old friend Alexander Chuchinsky, and the second is with the CEO of Penthouse, Kelly Holland. And we'll be back with both of those after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number ten, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your ten free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. One dark and stormy night in the mid-80s, Joe Bob Briggs, Harlan Ellison, and the ghost of El Santo pulled a train on Elvira while Siskel and Ebert sobbingly masturbated in the corner. From that union arose the greatest movie critic and luchador that ever lived. We're not going to talk about him. He's kind of a dick. Instead, we're going to talk about me, El Goro, the stuttering movie fan and host of the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. Every week on Talk Without Rhythm, I discuss two to three movies tangentially tied together by a theme. I cover action. And the most complete fighter in the world. Sci-fi. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Horror. Oh, no tears, please. It's a waste of good suffering. And the continuing adventures of James Spader, sexual deviant. You're not worried that I'm going to fuck you, are you? I'm not interested in that, and I'm waste. Now pull up your skirt. So check me out at TWORpodcast.blogspot.com, drunkenzombie.com, or subscribe on iTunes. Talk Without Rhythm, the only podcast that will not attract the world. Adios. 
Well, Eric, would you say that we're just two dudes who love talking about movies over at the Culture Cast? I mean, yeah. I don't know if dudes is the correct nomenclature, though. <laughs> dudes, bros. Okay, what about movie nerds? No. Okay, uh, dudes is fine. Not nerds. Anything but movie nerds. Well, over here at the Culture Cast, we talk about new movies, overlooked gems, classics, and some films that cause us to question our sanity twice a week. Yeah, Hot to Trot comes to mind for sure. Yeah, Hot to Trot was a real mess. So make sure to check out the Culture Cast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Rob St. Mary from The Projection Booth, and I want to tell you about a humble guy you might have heard of before. It's my podcast partner. His name's Mike White, and he's got a new book out. It's called Cinema Detours, and I just want to tell you that the guy is so humble that he won't even talk about it on the show. He won't even ask you to go to our website, projection-booth.com, or go over to Amazon.com and pick up either the paper version or, you know, the ones and zeros, the digital for your Kindle. He won't ask you to do that. That's how humble he is, but I think you need to do it. You want to know why? Because it's a great read, and especially with the movies that you've seen before, it's kind of like chatting with an old friend and having a good laugh. And as for the movies that you haven't seen, well, i got to throw a beat down on Mr. White because he's now expanded my list probably another hundred films that I need to see. It's Cinema Detours. You can get it at Amazon.com, either in paper form or for your Kindle. And, of course, you can always get more information about this book and the Projection Booth podcast at Projection-Booth.com. It's Cinema Detours. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. I want you to tell me how you initially got interested in Caligula. By now, I've been interested in Caligula for certainly 10 years, without exaggeration. So when I was a teenager and I started becoming really interested in filmmaking, I looked at a lot of 1960s and 70s, let's say, avant-garde, more kind of underground films. And the early films of Tinto Brass really fascinated me. You know, he did films like Colcore Ngola, which has the English title of Deadly Sweet, Nero Subianco, and so on in the 60s in London with very innovative editing and cinematography. And that's really what inspired me to do my first films because he had little budget in London but was very imaginative in the way he filmed these films. And, you know, starting out as a low-budget filmmaker, it was really inspiring for me to do my first films like that in Germ here in Germany. And, you know, because I admired Tinter's style, I looked at his other works and his style is really distinct and I was aware that there was trouble in the production of Caligula. Not everybody agreed on what everybody would do in the final, in the production of Caligula. So when I first watched Caligula, <laughs> you know, I thought, okay, I can recognize the cinematography in places, but something looks off. I felt the edits were unlike what Tinto would do. And, um, to say it in a neutral way, they were far more conventional than what Tinto would do. And a lot of camera angles I liked. But then I saw all these shots that I thought, that doesn't look like what Tinto would edit like. And the sound design and so on, it was by far more conventional and slowly edited than Tinto's other works. You know, he did a film Salon Kitty right before Caligula. And there the director's cut has been released on DVD and Blu-ray from Tinto's personal print. 
And, you know, Tinto always edits his own films. And Salon Kitty I find so interesting because it was a more big budget, in quotation marks, mainstream film. You know, his earlier films are very avant-gardistic in parts. And Salon Kitty, even that film that was quite popular and was made to reach a larger audience, was still filmed in this very imaginative and elegant way that Tinto retained throughout his other works. The film The Key from 1983 is also in this very imaginative visual style. So yeah, that's when I got really interested in Caligula. Then I researched it. I found this website that RJ, as he calls himself on the internet, did, where he talked about the Caligula production history. I got really hooked and I thought, I want to find out how Tinto Brasso would have done Caligula. You know, can I find out details of his ideas and are there other scenes? And it was a continuous quest. My first attempts were really just looking at still photos from deleted scenes, finding online gossip and so on. You know, gossip like there was a 210-minute version in Cannes, including all kinds of scenes, which, by the way, is not accurate. Over the years, I started researching more and more and more. I wrote my graduation thesis at Stuttgart Media University, Hochschule der Medien Stuttgart, here in Germany, about reconstructing the version in, you know, reconstructing the ideas of Tinto Brass from the 70s, as far as we can reconstruct them from the original sources. And I got access to more and more material, you know, shooting scripts, transcripts of lines spoken on the set that was shared with me by other uh, Caligula researchers. And I started assembling a preliminary assembly of the film using still images and all the footage available anywhere in the world. You know, there were some bootleg VHS from Australia that included one shot not seen anywhere else. And then I recognized there were some fragments of Tinto's work print in some versions. Tinto was fired when he was 84 minutes into editing Caligula. And you know how I discovered that they were the work print? That's a really long story that is covered in my thesis. People can read it online. But basically, I started to assemble a version that got more and more close to a study version, what the ideas of Caligula were, much like you know, the film Greed by Erich von Stroheim that was cut much by the studio. There is a version out now where they replace missing scenes with stills. And that's how you should imagine my first attempt at reconstructing Caligula initially, where scenes were missing. I used stills. Other scenes I started editing in a quicker way. I used cutaways where I found them that made the scenes more interesting. And with this version... <laughs> I talked to Kelly Holland of Penthouse and she looked at the thesis and that version and found it all very interesting. Uh, that's a long story. When did you approach Brass with what you had found and kind of your idea of wanting to reconstruct this? So this was around 2012 or 2013. <laughs> it was pretty interesting. I, I talked to one of his friends at the film festival at one point, and he gave me Tinto's number and told me, oh, you should give Tinto a call about this, which was amazing to me because, you know, I tried to get in touch with Tinto because his early experimental films before he did his erotic films were so important to my development, my cinematic language, and it was impossible to know how to contact him and suddenly I get his number. So I call him and obviously, <laughs> I mean, can you imagine call calling someone whom you consider as your her idol, your mentor without, you know, without me being in contact with him just through his films and finally getting his number. So I got excited and I visited him in Italy. You know, he started liking me and I like him, obviously. 
And there was this retrospective of his films in the United States in 2012. So I went to Italy to his place and I, he gave me some copies of some of his early films that I subtitled and, you know, sent via mail to the United States for the retrospective. And so we became friends. And, you know, I gave, so one day we sat down and we watched my reconstruction with the still frames, with the missing footage where, where everything was indicated. And he, he was really interested and he gave me a lot of feedback. So he talked about this while watching, you know, it was very interesting. And, you know, I showed him my thesis, my book, and uh, he was quite impressed. I, I don't know how much in detail he read it. We talked about it and I showed it to him. But he was really impressed. So for a few years, I talked to him occasionally on the phone, telling him, hey, we should try to get this off the ground. He wasn't so much fond of the idea of talking to Penthouse again. But at one point, I kind of asked him, let me talk to Penthouse and see what they say. And she said, yeah, you know, okay, do whatever you want. You know, I'm not acting on Pinto's behalf there. He was just really interested in what I had done. So I wrote Penthouse an email. Now, just to the general ad email address of Penthouse, writing, hey, I did this and so on. And, and I didn't expect it two days later, I get an email back from Kelly Holland, the CEO of Penthouse, which was pretty. Yeah, I mean, I thought this email might get lost somewhere in some mailing system, you know, some employees at Penthouse read it and dismisses or whatever. I had no idea of the company, you know, what the company is like or so. And then I get an email from the CEO personally saying, oh, this sounds really interesting. We should meet. It was pretty amazing. When was that? What was the timeline for you contacting uh, Kelly Holland? This was 2016, early 2016. I would say it must have been March 2016 when I called her, when I wrote her an email. Okay, so she was just taking over Penthouse at the time then. Yeah, and I had no idea of it. Basically, you know, the whole project, it was something more in the background. I did my feature film Timeless here in Germany and I did a lot of stuff. And this was not something, that, let's say, that Tinto and I talked about a lot. It was more, I showed him what I had done, he found it interesting, and he says he might consider doing something about this sometime. And But, you know, nothing set in stone or nothing signed. He just signaled some interest that might be. And so um, the time went by, and 2016 I wrote to her. Yeah, this was March 2016. I had no idea what Penthouse was like and about the situation of Penthouse, who owned Penthouse, anything. Basically, I wrote without any, without doing much research because I just thought Penthouse owned Caligula. Let's see what they say about this, you know, and later on we can see what happens. So she writes back and she tells me that next month she's in Cannes in southern France. There was some trade show, not the big film festival, but some, you know, trade show for the film industry. And she could meet me there. So I got pretty excited and I flew to Cannes. And, you know, from Germany where I live, it's not a long flight. I did, I did a little vacation there, but I was so nervous that day, you know. You know, you, you got to pitch your project to the CEO of this multinational corporation, you know, Penthouse Global Media, as it's called, I believe. So I went to this. So they set up a hotel, hotel seats in a big hotel where they did all their business meetings. And so I went there 
and I got so excited talking about it. I think, I believe the first thing I did was taking out my thesis I had written, a print out that was about a hundred pages long, you know, and I gave it to her. And, you know, as she said later to me, she was really impressed and she took me seriously from then on. And, you know, before that she had kind of, she did not, not take me seriously, but she kind of said, thought, okay, let's see what this guy is going to tell me. But she was apparently really impressed. And then I kept talking and talking about what I had thought and so on. And this meeting, which was probably supposed to last 20 minutes, went on for two hours or three hours or so. You know, it was pretty nice. You know, actually, so this is some funny story. Before that meeting, I was so excited that I really <laughs> didn't have much appetite that day. So I kind of went in there without having eaten. So I start talking and then I go really hungry and I see some fruit. I said, oh, can I have that? I said, oh, you're hungry. Let's order some room service. Let's get you some food. And immediately the atmosphere was really casual and nice. So <laughs> unlike I had imagined this high level meeting of going. And it ended basically in her saying, you know, I acquired a company recently. So she gave me a rundown of what she had done and how she had acquired Penthouse. And she said, so I'm not really sure what we have about Caligula, but whatever we have, you can take a look at, you know, see if it's, it might be interesting for your research or whatever, you know. She didn't commit to anything then. It was just, okay, you're a researcher. You do your non-commercial research. Fly out to LA and see what we're doing and what we have. You can, she, she let me stay in, in her house, which was really nice. So I didn't really, it didn't cost me much. I just had to pay for the flight. And yeah, then I got to fly out to Los Angeles that summer to take a look at what Penthouse had. You've done a documentary film called Mission Caligula where you are speaking about this. And the thing that really got me watching that again last night was when you told her that Penthouse had a warehouse of film, that she wasn't even aware of that yet because she was just like the brand new CEO. And I love that part. You must have felt like a kid in a candy store walking in there and being able to see all of these original elements to this film that you had studied for so long. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, this is a feeling that's unimaginable, basically. So... I arrived there and they took me to a room at Penthouse and said, okay, this is what we have of Caligula, take a look. And they gave me a little, a box with a few videotape masters, you know, digital masters to the Imperial Edition. And I thought, that's it? You know, I was really disappointed and worried and thought, this is all you have of Caligula? I, I know all of this stuff. And she said, yeah, yeah, that's, I believe that's all we have. And I knew from a friend who had been involved with the, with Caligula about 10 years ago, 12 years ago, that he had gone to an archive where they stored, he said, a lot of the footage. He believed there wasn't everything, but there were a lot of cardboard boxes. And I told her, what about this archive? And she said, what archive? <laughs> she had no idea what I was talking about because apparently they hadn't told her, they hadn't informed her. So I asked my friend again, where was the archive? He told me the address, and then I told her. So she called them, or she had somebody call them. <laughs> Apparently they had all the footage, and 
but basically this was a really lucky coincidence <laughs> because they basically apparently they paid rent now again and now this uh, this material was safe so i got to go in there and she said okay just take a look and look at anything you want so i go there and there are 400 boxes like cardboard boxes about the size you know when you move your furniture that size is a huge amount of boxes and there was everything the original negative you know <laughs> there was you know positive prints of the entire footage and she kind of she she was there also she kind of <laughs> made this game she took some random roll of positive film unrolled a little bit and asked me okay which scene is that and i looked at it and said, oh it's this in the sequence so <laughs> she found that pretty amusing i think because i studied the film so much in detail and a lot of the material is in really good shape some of it was um, somewhat rough. Some of it was uh, pristine. You know, it looks as like after the production of Caligula Wrapped, they just put everything in cardboard boxes. Everything. You know, it looks like somebody, some of the boxes just look like somebody emptied a desk into a box, you know, with everything on the desk. Some of the boxes are sound reels. Some of, you find, ev like, you know, it was uh, having researched the film and having learned so much about its past. I found so many things there that I thought didn't exist anymore. You know, obviously I'm so interested in Tinto's ideas for Caligula. And so they discovered Tinto Brass' work print among this, which I can t tell you in a little while much more. I think listeners will be really curious in that. And, you know, then also, the production history of Caligula. After Tinto was dismissed, there was a British editor, Russ Lloyd, who assembled an edit of the film that apparently nobody was really satisfied with. So he delivered it, and I don't know the details, you know, because I'm interested in the creative part, not really in the legal part and the post-production. But he left, and they got Nino Baragli to do a new edit, which is largely the edit we know today. So then I found, suddenly found these cans saying Russ Lloyd's cut, which is pretty exciting, which is an, a cut of Caligula that apparently Penthouse wasn't satisfied with and that, 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 that Tinto hadn't been involved with either. There are all these rumors about a 210 minutes version that was supposedly shown in Cannes, France. Then there's this box suddenly saying trims from Cannes version. It wasn't shown at the film festival. It was shown at some kind of trade fair in Cannes. So in the in the late 70s, early 80s, suddenly you see this thing that has been kind of an urban legend just sitting there. It's pretty exciting. So how do you go about cataloging all of this stuff and just finding out what you have? Basically, I haven't done that so far because that would happen if this becomes a big project and it's if this happens and if this becomes a big project, a lot of time needs to be spent to, like I say, catalog everything that is there and scan the footage. It's pretty interesting. You find a lot of the material neatly labeled, but sometimes it's just boxes saying Caligula and lots of reels in them, you know. But you've got to find out which is which. And the big part of making a new edit of Caligula is really going through everything there is. And, you know, obviously I'm pretty qualified because I would recognize every shot of the film, but it would be a lot, a lot of work, you know, but also I'm certain it would lead to a lot of discoveries, you know, of shots and camera angles that were unknown before. 
you know, of scenes. Like I, uh, I have a very good idea about all the scenes in the film. You know, um, I have record, I've read records of the shooting and so on. And there are still frames and so on. You know, we found more than 10,000 behind the scenes photographs from the set. So there was a photographer. He did, I think it was like 10,000 black and white pictures plus a huge amount of color pictures. So basically he had two cameras hanging around his neck. One was loaded with black and white film stock. The other one was loaded with light, color slides film stock. So you have all this stuff just here. You know, I was there on a vacation and, you know, I I wasn't paid or anything. I was just there to see if I could find in anything interesting for my private research. So with a limited amount of days, you know, you kind of just randomly open a box and peek inside and another box of reels there is. Or, you know, there's some behind the scenes photos you had never seen, like, there's literally behind the scenes photos from every scene of the film, plus a lot of captions for all the photos, giving you all the details. And it's just apparently somebody, I don't know who, it's typewritten, just wrote captions to every single photo. You know, you see photo one, this and this is happening, this person in the background, blah, blah. And then like going until t- photo 10,000 something. Oh my know? God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it felt like. <laughs> it felt very surreal, but you know, a little moment where I sound really proud, but I got to say, I did not have to revise anything I had written in my thesis based on any finding there, which makes me really proud of my research. It sounds really selfish or, you know, whatever. I was really happy about that, that nothing contradicted what I had written. It all fell into place. Well, you are a working filmmaker, but obviously you're not going to do this project for free you can't just afford to take off a year or two years to go through and now scan everything make you know sync up the audio do all of this process so what are the next steps because when i was watching mission caligula i was like this feels kind of like it feels like one like the perfect dvd extra for when the three disc caligula blu-ray comes out which we all hope happens and it also feels like this is what you could show to investors and say, this is why I need X hundred thousands of dollars of, uh, to be able to now finance this project. You're exactly right. And I think, and that's obviously Kelly is the rights holder and she owns Penthouse. So it's obviously up to her now. You know, Mission Caligula screened in Los Angeles in February. You probably saw some of the publicity there. So there were apparently, or there are people really interested in this, but I cannot say much more at this current time. So it's it's in motion, if that's what I can say. But I'm not working at this very second. I'm not working on it, but a lot of stuff is in motion for happening. Yeah. Tell me about that work print that you found of Tinto's. So basically what we found, or what they found, so they digitized this black and white thing back in my film world. So Tinto edited the film in color, you know, in on color film stock, thirty five millimeter positive. When he was dismissed, you know, when he couldn't continue editing, I I don't know who did what, but I can just tell you about the findings. Apparently they took apart his work print shot by shot. They cut it apart again and I think they wanted to or they did put it back into the raw footage. You know, you have these rolls of 35 millimeter positive film to edit with. 
apparently they just cut apart what he had edited, glued it back in into the roles and started editing again from scratch, which explains why in the final film, all these scenes use different takes and different shots because they rarely consulted what Tinto had done. So apparently they had cut it apart and this was maybe a thousand fragments of film. And before they put it back into the roles, somebody had the idea, let's make a backup copy on 60 millimeter black and white film. So the work print, it's a 60 millimeter black and white film with about a thousand shots from Caligula in a random order. Apparently they had cut it up and they had kind of spliced it back together in a random order. And when you watch what was on the black and white film, it was just, you know, one shot from the beginning of the film, then like half a second from the midst of the film, then suddenly three seconds shot from the end of the part that Tinto got to and so on. So it was really unwatchable, but it was, a, I got very curious and actually some parts of this work print had been published on the Imperial edition earlier. So it had been found, but nobody had recognized it just looked like a random assembly of shots. And I believe in the booklet to the Imperial edition, it states that oh, Sinto's work print was just a random, you know, just a random assembly of footage to be fine-tuned later or something to that effect. And so I recognized when you look at the beginning and end of each of these randomly, you know, of these random shots, you can see the very detailed marks that the tape leaves. You know, when Tinto assembled the work print or when anybody assembles any print on film, you use this transparent tape. Whenever you make a cut, you glue the end of one shot and the beginning of the next shot together. And, that's, and that tape leaves a distinct mark on its edges. So, you know, if you put two tapes on a shot, you will find two lines in the frame. You know, like, I, I don't know if this is well explained. You saw it in the documentary. So I started assemb disassembling this digitally when I was in Germany and putting it back together like a puzzle, looking which of these lines fit, you know, which of these shots went together originally. And I find out that this was not a random, you know, cluster of footage. Actually, if you put order into that, it formed a coherent work print, a coherent film. And it was, some scenes were really easy to do because, you know, obviously there's a lot of continuity. Somebody walks through a door, cut a shot of them walking in from the other side. You, you know intuitively these go together. But a lot of scenes Tinto edited in this very expressionistic style where we have, just have a lot of close-ups that form a meaning. You know, you know what I mean? So you, you start a scene and you have close-up, 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 and they give you an impression. And these close-ups, there's no obvious way when you look at them to see which order they go together, like without consulting these splice marks. So I spent quite some time sitting on my computer here in Germany, just looking at these marks and trying to match some of the shots. And ultimately I succeeded. And the work, so Tinto got dismissed when he was about 84 minutes into editing the film. The last scene he got to edit was the scene of Proculus and this big machine that goes through the stadium. So he basically, he didn't get to the wedding scene. So he edited the film chronologically from beginning. And it's interesting to see the first scenes or a lot of scenes look very refined in his edit. He put a lot of work in it. But the one scene in, with the machine in the stadium 
is still very rough because he was obviously dismissed while he was working on that. So that scene, I believe in the documentary, I have a few shots of it with the scene with the machine in the stadium. You, you know, you see all these very long shots of these prosthetic hats buried that end in the hat being chopped off. And it looks really strange and embarrassing, which is, of course, because Sinto was planning on using a few frames from that shot. But, you know, in his word print, he put this long shot. But really, all the scenes up until that sequence, they are pretty refined. So unfortunately, the beginning of his work print was missing. You know, it's pretty weird. It start, we have a few shots here and there, but it properly starts. So this work print becomes complete in the scene in Tiberius's pool. But it's interesting in, in the Italian edition, Yo um, Caligola, which you can read about in my thesis, they use parts of this work print. And among those are apparently the beginning of the first scene. So we have that also. And uh, so I got puzzled together about 95% of his original work print, missing only some scenes in the beginning that I reconstructed. And the film was originally supposed to start quietly. I think Tinto said this in an interview sometimes also. You know, in a public interview, I believe on the appeal edition, he mentioned it. The film is supposed to start with this blurry frame that has superimposed credits. And after the credits, the frame slowly gets into focus and we see Caligula's face while he is sleeping. And then he wakes up and from a nightmare next to Drusilla. And that zooms out then. So in his, in his version, there was no, in his, plans there was no bloody coin in the beginning no bombastic music in the beginning it was a very quiet beginning using very different takes by the way than in the final cut so even if you recognize the scene of the blurry face going to focus he used a very different shot for that that zoomed out a lot more so it's just so interesting when you go to the archive and you see all this stuff some of it i mentioned in my documentary you know that i found this caligula press book from the 70s that's still called the film Gore Vidal's Caligula, and it's still said directed by Tinto Brass, but it already said additional scenes directed by Bob Guccione and Giancarlo Lurio, or whatever the credit means. He says, you know, I don't have it in my mind right now, the exact wording, which is a really interesting historic artifact, because, you know, Gore Vidal sued to have his name taken off the film. Tinto Brass sued not to be called director, you will not find that, like, any edition of Caligula anywhere in the world that says directed by Tinto Brass because he sued not to be called the director after Penthouse changed the film so much. I mean, he sued for five years to get control back to edit the film. I, I just know that he went to court and it was a long, where there was a long lawsuits until finally he settled for removing his directing credit. So Penthouse could release that version. But so there's this press book that already says that basically they included their pornographic scenes, which means it's the final version of Caligula, but they still had the Tinto credit as director and Govidal's credit. And, they're all, and it's pretty interesting also for people who are just interested in Caligula the way it is now, you know, the producer's cut. You have all these, you know, drafts for the bloody coin in the beginning. You know, I found all this material. It's so interesting. You find these, this material used for the effects for making the opening credits and, you know, for his coin and all these things. 
It's a really interesting thing. I found it pretty funny. I had this conversation quite recently at a film festival. I talked to someone about, you know, reconstructing the original ideas that Tinto Brass had for Caligula that, you know, that I researched, I re the ideas that I had researched and so on. And he's, oh, yeah, yeah, I watched the director's cut of Caligula. I said, what? No, you didn't. He said, oh, yeah, I got the Imperial Edition. It's on there. I watched it, <laughs> which I found interesting since it's such a huge misconception. A lot of people assume, I found it on the internet quite a few times and in a lot of message boards. They just assume that Guccione fired Tinto Brass took Tinto's version and put in hardcore pornography, which is not the case because, I mean, I, told, I just told you basically, they disassembled it and made a new version from scratch. And when you look at Tinto's work print, you know, even scenes that, like, you know, Nerva's suicide sequence in the film. And that's a sequence I believe that very few people would even suspect being tampered with. It looks pretty straightforward in the in any version that you watch of Caligula. But actually, when you look at Tinto's work print, he used entirely different shots and, you know, entirely different parts of shots. And the dialogue is so different. And, you know, in, in the version that Guccione's editors did, basically Tiberius asks Nerva, why do you commit suicide? And Nerva has this line, old man can sometimes see the future. <laughs> so, and which sounds very yeah very important but it's actually a bit weird and when he says that line you don't see his face you see the reaction of Tiberius well actually on set he has this little monologue about Tiberius having been a very decent man and gotten getting it basically says that Tiberius had gotten corrupted by power so why would Caligula, who is far less sophisticated, not get corrupted by power more? So he decides to escape from the cycle of people getting corrupted by power, which is a really important moment, but it's missing. So you cannot really get an idea of Tinto's edit from any scene in the final film. Tiberius's murder, interesting enough, was apparently modeled relatively close on Tinto's edit by the editors of the final cut. So from all the sequences in the film, only in that one, I would say, you really can see some faint traces of Tinto's editing. You know, when you see distorted mirrors showing how Tiberius is killed and so on, but also not done in the way that Tinto would have necessarily done it. Essentially, the third act of the film is so much changed. You know, in Tinto's cut, or in, not in Tinto's cuts, Tinto only cut until 84 minutes, and it was a work print, a rough cut. But in Tinto's screenplay and the way he shot it on the set, in the third act of the film, it becomes very anarchistic. Caligula, basically in the midst of the film, he gets power hungry. And in the final cuts that we see, or in whatever version of Caligula you'll see, it's basically a person becoming power hungry, doing crazier and crazier stuff, and being killed in the end. But the way the film was done... You basically see the way the film was intended. You basically see that Caligula recognizes that all the politicians let him do all the craziness and they don't step up for the people or for the interests of the people. They just speak for themselves and they want to be left alone and want to be left in power. Whatever craziness the emperor does, they just let him do it. So he decides to try to provoke the politicians into taking action by making more and more absurd things. 
and there are sequences that were entirely deleted from any version of Caligula that were actually never edited because Tintor never got to them and they might have been included in some early rough cuts that Pengotionis editors did, but they were not included in Cannes, which are basically uh, scenes of you know, Caligula going to the Temple of Jupiter and taking Jupiter's treasury to finance an upcoming war and uh, doing a lot of very crazy things. And the Imperial Bordello scene with the huge orty ship, it's pretty interesting. And the, the, the way it was supposed to start, which you see in the documentary, is that everybody is standing there frozen. Caligula walks onto the ship and then he screams action and suddenly everything starts moving, which is obviously very surrealistic. In the final cut by the Guccione's editors, it's already in full swing. And it was supposed to be that Caligula tried to provoke the senators by, you know, forcing their wives and daughters to be prostitutes on that ship, which is horrible. And the way it was shot is actually, we see all these people on the ship being carefree and happy, including the women, which is such a surrealistic thing. Caligula hopes he provokes the people, but they're actually enjoying it. And Guccione actually reshot a few scenes, not only hardcore shots. He shot a scene of women on the ship looking distressed because they're forced to participate in this. So he wanted to give this whole thing a less absurdist tone, a more serious tone. And I mean, there's a sequence which is only partially used in the final cut of Caligula at a victory banquet where he, yeah, where he observes all the people and they celebrate his winning in Britain where while they didn't invade Britain, they just cut down the pirate canes. And he observes all the senators and everybody celebrating and he's disgusted by them just following orders and not challenging him. So he starts playing a Simon Says game, saying, you know, Caesar says stand, Caesar says sit, Caesar says run, Caesar says crawl. And um, ultimately, and he re he tells Longinus, his aide, everybody who fails. And then he ends it by saying, Longinus arrests all of those who failed Rome, which is the only part that's in the final cut. And, you know, and then when Long Dynas reads the list on set, they read, okay, Senators Bob Guccionius, Senator Tintonius, something like that, which was really weird. And there's countless stuff like that, that I think no version of Caligula will even give you, give you an idea exists. And basically any version of Caligula you watch anywhere, it doesn't matter if it's a censored cut from the 80s, if it's some modern version that gets rid of the hardcore footage. Every cut just basically fiddles with the final Boccuccione cut. Some add a few extra shots here and there, or, you know, a lot of them shorten it or get rid of some hardcore footage. But no cut really <laughs> goes back to what the film was originally planned to be like when it was being filmed. Yeah, I'm really glad you included that scene of Tiberius not drinking wine or drinking wine, depending on which version you're watching. Cause it seems like such a minor thing, but it has bigger implications. And just the way that they would cut around that seems so odd, but it does change the tone and the, the way that he is so hypocritical about killing the man who's been drinking wine, even though he's just called for wine himself. Yeah, and it's it's so interesting when you look at it. It's something I didn't show in the documentary. It's already taking place in the scene with the pool before that sequence we're talking about. Even there, he drinks wine, and in the final cut, they 
de-emphasized it as much as possible so most people don't notice it. And I cannot say why they did it. I can just say when you look at this, the opening scenes that are so surrealist, when Fabir is in the pool and where he starts having his crazy monologue, you know, in this weird set with all the acts going on, uh, he's actually supposed to be drunk. And it's pretty obvious when you look at the way it's originally put together. While when you watch the final cut of Caligula that all the listeners who are interested certainly have seen, he just appears crazy. You know, he walks up there, he rants and he says these things. And it's actually a drunk man talking. That's what it was supposed to be. In addition to his hypocrisy of asking for wine, drinking wine, and then having a soldier killed for drinking wine. And it's interesting to look at it if... In, if you look at what how the work print looks like, so Tiberius is drunk in all these opening scenes, and that's why he behaves so weirdly. And then when Nerva commits suicide, suddenly Peter O'Toole acts in a much more, you know, much more held back style. So basically, he had adapted this acting. The character is supposed to be drunk and outrageous in the first scenes, and then really calm. Well. In the final film, I don't know why they made him look crazy. Sim- I mean, simply crazy. He's crazy either way, but, you know, the character is crazy either way. But yeah, And there are all these small differences in editing that really de-emphasize moments or put emphasis on others. You know, for example, the beginning of the scene where Caligula is made emperor, it looks very straightforward in the final cut. But actually, in, if you look at the work print, there is this very interesting scene that m- reminds me of Eisenstein's montages, where you just, in silence, will see all these people standing with quick close-ups of all the people present. And it's just highly interesting in a very different tone. You know, I do have some theories that are that might or might, may or may not be true, and I didn't put them into my thesis because this is just my personal impression but i had like i find it very enigmatic and strange why does caligula start in the release version you know after we see the um, caligula and drusilla in nature and we see the bloody coin we see the two of them in bed then he caligula gets summoned to see tiberius on capri but i believe in the final cut it's never said that it's actually on capri it's just that the emperor is waiting for you to see him or something like that. I don't have the line in my head exactly right now. And so Caligula goes to Capri. We see all this madness taking place there. It's taken out that Tiberius is supposed to be drunk, whatever change that makes. And then we cut to the shot of Caligula waking up, saying he's going to kill me. And this thing, he's going to kill me, this dream was originally supposed to be the beginning of the film. And I have a theory that might not be true, but at least it was my impression that someone in this editorial staff after Tinto left, they figured, oh, the scenes with Tiberius with all these sexual acts going on, they are so weird, let's make it all a dream. At least it's a theory. So the film starts and so on, and then half an hour in, Caligula wakes up saying, oh, he's trying to kill me. It might, I might be wrong about the intentions, but at least I was always so puzzled. Why would they put the beginning of the film half an hour in, you know? You know, Tinto is always filming with multiple cameras, and it's a method that I also use for my films in certain scenes. You know, I like to film something from multiple angles and get a lot of raw footage so you can get really creative during editing. So basically, there are countless ways to put this together. And the editors, when they wanted to cut around some things, they had 
a relatively easy time because there was always coverage of from other parts and other scenes and so on. I think I haven't told the listeners about the legendary Khan version. <laughs> Maybe people are. I must add, I have not seen the outtakes, but there was a lot of research that, you know, RJ shared with me and others shared with me and things that I read there. So my understanding is that the legendary Khan version is basically Caligula the way we know it plus 40 more minutes of Bob Guccione's hardcore pornography. <laughs> so basically it wasn't 210 minutes, and it, but it was a lot more just the scenes that Guccione had shot together with Giancarlo Louis. They went on for a long time, apparently. And then they were shortened after that to the runtime that we know in the final version released in, in 79, 80, 81. I mean, you see my expertise is mostly the production history and the style and what, uh, there was history of how it was filmed, basically, and the style of the film and how it was supposed to be. So whenever it gets after the point that Tinto left, probably there are other researchers who are much more qualified to say what went on, who talked to whom and so on. My interest is always reconstructing the intentions that were originally put into the film as it was being filmed. So while this stuff is happening that you can't necessarily talk about with the Caligula project. Can you tell me what you're working on these days? Oh yeah, I'm, so here in Germany, I'm working on this feature film Revolution, which is kind of the sequel to my feature film Timeless. I'm doing this trilogy. I call it a trilogy of rebellion that started with my first feature film, Menschen Liebe. Then there's Timeless. We're actually quite a few American actors are in. I think we, we talked the first time that's ha when we talked a few years ago, there's Harry Lennox and Rick Shapiro and so on, all filmed here in Germany. And now this feature film is going to be my biggest feature film. I cannot really tell you much about it yet. It's going to be the most spectacular one with a very interesting cast. And it's basically the story of a young man who goes disillusioned by dating life, by always having very boring dates, and then he meets Mr. Constantine, who's played by me, that's my role in my film so far, who introduces him to interesting girls, which is ending up in a big, where he, which ends up with him being drawn in a really huge political conspiracy, that's a satire, so it's going to be a very wild and anarchistic film that cannot really be summarized easily. So where's the best place for people to keep up with you in all of your projects? People can connect with me on Facebook. I use that very much to stay in touch with people and so on. And I do have a website, alexander-tushinsky.de. I mean, your readers will surely see my name spelled out, so it's basically my name. And on IMDb, I always put my projects so they can be found on IMDb with a lot of info. So I do my best to be pretty present online. Alexander, thank you so much for your time today. It's always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. I always like the interviews with you because you have very in-depth interest in these things, which is very good quality. I like it a lot. I'm curious how you decided to get involved with filmmaking. 
I had a little bit of production background when I was quite young. I, I went to college in Denton, or at least I started to go to college in Denton as a broadcast communications major. And within the first two months, I applied for a job that I had seen posted in the newspaper to television station. I was hired and I thought, hmm, let's see, I can go to college for four years to get this job or I can just get this job. And of course, in my hubris, I decided I didn't need to go to college now. So I worked for a television station. Ironically, given where I'm at right now as the CEO of Penthouse, I worked for Pat Robertson and, uh, uh, you know, Pat Robertson fame, the 700 Club, so the evangelical uh, televangelist. Uh, I was the only heathen working amongst them. So uh, I don't think they knew that when they hired me, but uh, obviously they wouldn't have hired me. So I had a bit of a production background. I was also an actress. I've been doing theater for quite some time in my hometown, which is Dallas, Texas. I would ultimately leave the, quit the job, leave Dallas, move to LA to, to go to a place called the American Academy of Dramatic Arts to do what I thought was refining my skills as a, as an actress. And I worked out here. I, I was never extremely successful. I managed to pay my bills, but I was never extremely successful. I don't know. Maybe I wasn't that good, but I would probably tag it to the fact that I was 5'11", which made for an excellent runway model, but generally a really unsuccessful television actress because you're taller than everybody. And when you put heels on, you're really taller than everybody. So, uh, you know, short of Gina Davis and uh, Sigourney Weaver and a couple and, and um, a couple of other tall actresses. I mean, it's a, it's a rough, it's a rough road, but I did a lot of commercials and, you know, just odds and ends, voiceovers and industrials and uh, the occasional, you know, three lines on a TV show. But during that process, um, for through a very weird set of circumstances, I ran into some people that were doing something in Central America that I found to be just, I mean, it captured my imagination. I thought it had great dramatic qualities. And I made the mistake of opening my mouth and saying, gosh, somebody should do a documentary on this. This is really tremendous. And there was a priest that was heading up the process. It was 600 people traveling through all the war zones of Central America in support of what was called the Constitutor Peace Plan at the time. I said to the priest, Blaise Bonpain, who was the, talking about this project that was going to happen, I said, gosh, it's got so much dramatic import, it would be great if someone did a documentary. And in priestly fashion, he took my hands, looked deeply into my eyes and said, I think you're the person to do it. So when a priest says that to you and you and you were raised in convent school, it impacts you greatly. And I, I was completely unprepared. Other than my short stint with Pat Robertson, you know, many years earlier, I didn't know much about production. I certainly, other than what I'd learned in a studio, I certainly didn't know anything about tromping through a jungle and uh, in the middle of a war zone and trying to shoot something and not get shot, by the way. But I don't know. It's something about it moved me. And a couple of things happened. And within uh, two months, I found myself landing in Panama with a crew. And uh, we traveled with these um, peace marchers and traveled through six different countries. We got stopped at the borders of a couple, but essentially Panama, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, at the height of the Contra War, uh, we did not get into uh, Honduras. Uh, a few people got into El Salvador, Guatemala. We spent time in, and we ended in Mexico City. I ultimately was due to, to would edit this documentary, and it won some awards. It was called Viva La Paz, and I was hooked. I was completely hooked on the politics. I was always 
progressive. I was always a bit of an adrenaline junkie. And that really captured me. And so I would go on to work in Central America uh, for five or six years through the early 90s and through the resolution of, of most of those wars, which didn't necessarily make the countries any better, but on paper, the peace accords were that we were supporting way back in 1985 were in fact signed. And that march, those people had inadvertently through no brilliance of their own because, you know, you put, it's actually, I think I said 600 earlier, it was actually 400 people from over 40 countries uh, speaking, you know, all those different languages. And you put a bunch of progressives together and it's always chaos, right? Because progressives always believe they have to have consensus on everything versus the right-wing conservatives who believe in totalitarian rule, right? There's somebody that's going to tell you what you're going to do, and if you don't like it, you're out. Well, progressives always have to, you know, hear everybody's opinion, no matter how stupid. So it was was a pretty clunky operation, and everybody always descended into complete chaos and argument. But despite all of their own weaknesses and and, uh, despite all of the, you know, bickering and infighting, they actually became a lightning rod for something that happened that did in fact change the entire region and it initiated the peace plan that they were they're kind of promoting. It was a crazy thing. And I was just happy I was just lucky enough to have been there to capture it all. And that got me hooked and I would go on to do some other documentaries in Central America and then come back here, do some documentaries here that were on strange aspects of American culture. They were for Australia and Australian broadcasting, and they were fascinated with a few aspects of of our culture. And so I did a documentary on guns uh, called Critical Mass and the Gun Culture of America. I did one uh, called Your Money or Your Life on the healthcare crisis in America, which has not changed at all. All of these, and now these I did, you know, 15 years ago, and the issues remain the same. And then the producers in Australia were casting around for a third and they said, hey, what about you're in Los Angeles, you've got the valley right there, why don't you do something on pornography? And we did a documentary called Porn in the USA. It was at a time when Bruce Springsteen's song was, was at the top of the charts, Born in the USA. So we did Porn in the USA. And I met the people and adults and back to being a bit of a renegade and a bit of an adrenaline junkie. These people were so off the center of America. And I went in as a progressive, you know, as a default feminist. And I say default because, you know, I didn't go to Wharton and I didn't spend years in feminist studies and I wasn't a devotee of Andrea Dworkin. I'd been raised without a father. I'd done whatever I wanted to do all of my life. And I, you know, never thought I couldn't do what I wanted to do. I never even contemplated that somebody might be discriminating against me. I'm also, as I said, five foot 10. So when you're five foot 10, you're taller than most men around you. So the idea of in any way, not dominating a situation, uh, plus my personality is domineering as, as my friends and enemies will tell you, you know, I was just a default feminist. So I went in with all of the cliches and preconceptions about what I would find in the adult space. 
And they were all blown to pieces within a very short period of time. And the people were generally incredibly articulate, highly intelligent. They were all the kids that had dropped out of school because they couldn't sit still, because they were bored, because they were too smart to be there. The women were incredibly interesting, many very articulate and insightful about why they were there. There were some broken toys, as there always are. I would call them the Paris Hilton syndrome, which is too young, too much money, too much, you know, minor fame as a porn star. And that could derail you pretty easily in Hollywood when you're, you know, 21. But there is a kind of a, there's an auto correction that happens in adult, which is you have to keep showing up early and you have to keep looking good. You can't look like you've been run, run through the ringer. So that forces you to, to basically not drink yourself into a stupor or take so many drugs that you don't wake up for 24 hours. So generally in the self-correcting Darwinian pool, people keep it together. But what I found most stunning uh, and what really attracted me to this industry was that when I really got in it and I examined it and I got past my prejudices because I met the people and meeting people always gets you past your preconceived notions and your prejudices, I found that these women, whether they knew it or not, whether they articulated it or not, uh, whether it was a conscious statement or not, were making a very powerful statement for feminism. This was before the term slut-shaming had ever come onto the scene or into the pop culture lexicon. And these women were by default saying, my body, my rules. Not my dad's, not my husband's, not my mullah, my rabbi, or my priest's rules. And frankly, if you don't like what I do, that's your problem, not my problem. And that, to me, is such a testimony and a statement. They weren't racked with guilt. They weren't racked with shame. Had they been guilty, had they felt guilty, had they been ashamed of what they did, they wouldn't have been there or they certain, certainly wouldn't have continued to be there. And I found that great because, A, it was just so politically disruptive and culturally disruptive that you had these women, and we're talking now in the late 90s, that were willing to just say, I don't really care. That's your problem, not mine, and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna wear a scarlet A either emotionally, mentally, or physically because you have some issue with it. And that was like an incredible liberation when you see people do that, and, and you then begin to participate with them in that. So I was asked as I was doing this documentary, I I probably said something you know I don't know somewhat arrogant to to somebody. It was actually a big company at the time called Vivid. I said something without meaning to be derogatory, but probably a bit derogatory. And the vice president said to me, what, you think it's so easy? You want to come try to do a movie? You think you know what you're doing? And, you know, journalists always want to jump down whatever rabbit hole presents itself. So I said, sure. Then, of course, I had to run out and buy a movie and watch what, look at what a porn actually looked like because I'd never seen one. Like, holy hell, what am I? Anyway. I did a movie through no fault or insightful brilliance or talent of my own. Of my own, it was a huge success. It was a huge success because I had the two biggest actresses of, of the day starring in it. It was a huge success, and Vivid thought I was some kind of 
mystical auteur and they offered me a job and you know I was a starving documentary filmmaker so I said yeah sure when I look back on it it wasn't very much money but it seemed like an enormous amount of money to me at the time and I had an, I had a lot of fun and the deeper I got into it the more refined my political view became around it or the more you know refined is is actually a good word but the longer I was in the trenches the more clear I became about how disruptive and renegade everybody really was and how profound that was, that this went well below the idea of, you know, socialist, fascist, Democrat, Republican, left, right, whatever. This really attacked politics, if you would like to say that, I would call it cultural politics, at a level that went back 4,000 years, you know, which is the whole, you know, what is a woman and is her value more than her virginity and why do we have cotillions and (laughs) why do girls have to be presented at 16 and a quinceaneros and what does that mean and, you know, how many goats do you have to trade for a wife? And I mean, you know what? I mean, this is everything underpins, you know, this relationship with women uh, underpins so much of what our politics are built on and uh, what our culture is built on and what our cultural norms are built on. So I loved it that these women were just standing there and saying, fuck you, because that's what I find myself saying most of the time to most people is fuck you. And I loved it. And I've never turned back and I've never regretted a moment. I then progressed you know, from cameraman and director in the business. Uh, I will only tell you a funny story if you like to hear it. One of the f- first things I ever shot was a uh, three-person scene, two guys and a girl. To describe the position, uh, there was a guy laying on his back, a girl was on top of him facing him, and then there was another guy behind, and then there was a guy behind her. So the guy and and I not knowing the etiquette of a porn set, right? Which I didn't know the etiquette of a porn set. I was just here's the camera, and I was a bit of a shooter, and I had had to shoot a bit of stuff in Central America, and had become a better cameraman with time. And so it's like here's the camera, there's the scene, and action. <laughs> I thought that I I really had to like sit probably 20 feet away, and almost try to get them like surveillance camera. So I. So I wouldn't disturb them, right? I didn't want to interrupt the flow. So I'm sitting like 20 feet away. And if you know anything about cameras, you know that if you have to zoom in all the way, any like if you blink, the camera shakes like it's an earthquake. So I'm desperately trying to hold this camera steady. I'm 20 feet back, maybe even more, maybe 30 feet back. I'm sweating now because... You know, I'm shaky, my camera's shaky, it's hot in the studio, I'm thinking, oh God, this is terrible. And um, all of a sudden, the guy who who is standing up right behind the girl, so he's in doggy, is look, he glances over, and of course these are loose sets, so it's not like actors don't break the, the fourth wall. So he looks over at me, and he sees me like back there, you know, in the distance, right, shooting, and he sees the look of puzzlement on his face. And he raises his hand, he just motions to me to move a little closer. 
And I, I literally, it was, you know, it was like cheap comedy. I kind of look around to see who he's motioning to, and there's no one in the room but me. So I, I'm sitting on my ass on the floor, and I kind of scoot forward a few steps. And then he shakes his head no, and he motions again to come closer, a little closer, a little closer, a little closer, until finally I am almost like the, the tips of my shoes are touching the base of the couch they're on, and I'm almost under him so any sweat coming off of him is going to drip on me and he looks down at me and he goes now that's where you need to be when you shoot porn and he was absolutely right that's how those tight shots happen so I love the business and I worked for many companies I was with Vivid for many years doing a couple of films I was shooting 16 millimeter which I'd never shot film before and I really liked that so shooting for them for several years and then um, Gonzo came in, and I was considered to be more of a kind of the art, softer couples. And, and by the way, what I shot was not soft at all, but just because I actually like to art direct things, it was just considered to be more sophisticated. And um, so then I went and worked for Adam and Eve and Wicked and all the big companies. And then I was asked to come into a company that had just uh, started a, a broadcast channel. Uh, they were out of New York, and it was Playgirl TV, and and that was really my mil- milieu. It was my medium, right? Because it was it was designed erotica for women. And I went to meet with them, started shooting for them. They said, "Look, we don't really have any content. Why don't you come up with the look and feel of the channel?" I did. As you already know, or as you certainly will know by the time we get off the phone, I am never at a loss for words. Uh, I'm a, I'm a, at a loss for how to keep it short, but I'm never at a loss for words. So I became the spokesperson for the brand, did a lot of press, and uh, was very happy there and would have stayed extremely happy there and grown the brand, uh, except somewhere in that process, about a year and a half, they got cold feet. They were losing uh, their core audience that had been developed by default over the prior let's say 10 years, which was a gay audience. And as they moved to very decidedly try to develop erotica for women, there was a, there actually was a difference in the approach. And so they got nervous and they started straddling the, the, the divide, trying to make everybody happy, which makes no one happy. And anyway, so I left. And I was going to go do a channel to compete with them, actually called Chick TV, which I thought I would do as a little edgier and a little younger skewing. During that time, I got a phone call to uh, come meet with Penthouse that they, Bob Guccione had uh, gone into a bankruptcy. Guccione was a real genius, a true artist. And that's where he came from. He was a painter. He was a illustrator and a real visionary and also very much of a, of a renegade and loved being very disruptive. But none of those things add up to being a shrewd business person. Uh, his wife was the shrewd business person in that equation. She developed cancer and died. Uh, Don, uh, Bob was um, was a real recluse and, as I said, an artist. Her death, you know, he was always a bit mad, I think, but her death really pushed him into madness, I believe. And most artists, if they're really genius, they probably have to have an element of madness. But But losing her really pushed him over the edge and also made him vulnerable to the people around him who 
he had always relied on her for everything. And now he was lost. And so there were people around him that wanted his company, frankly. And uh, he also had lived well beyond, even though the company was a half billion dollar company, which today would be a billion dollar company by standards today. He had also lived well beyond his means. As an artist, he was not just an art collector, and most people will tell you had one of the largest private art collections in the country at that time, but he had become an art hoarder. So he had an 18,000 square foot mansion in Manhattan. Every piece of wall was covered, every square inch was covered with art, and not just up-and-coming artists, but these are, you know, Monet's and Degas and uh, Kadinsky's and Dali's and da-da-da-da-da. But people that went in there would also tell you that not only was every square inch of, of wall space covered in art, but there were eight and ten canvases lined up against all the walls, just standing, you know, like ten deep, right? Just canvases leaning up against each other. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of canvases and pieces of art. So he'd really gone off the deep end. And he also tried to build a casino in Atlantic City before he had a gambling license, which he would never end up getting. So all that was for naught. He tried to develop cold fusion nuclear reactors, didn't work, even though Stephen Hawkins would tell you that it should work. No, he was just out there. He was out there. It's part of his genius. So unfortunately, he loses the company in 2004. It's picked up by some venture capital guys. They screw around with it for a couple of years and it's a bright, shiny object and they can tell all their friends about it, but then they're trying to figure out actually how to make money. And there were no broadcast operations, which was just a huge hole in the tapestry of products. So I was just leaving Playgirl. I had done that for Playgirl. Come, you know, the, the, the request was the same. Please come create content so we can launch a channel and define the look and feel of the brand. And that's when I started with Penthouse and that was 12 years ago. And um, I love this brand and I love its history and Caligula is without a doubt uh, one of the most pivotal moments in the history, in the 52-year history of this brand, one of the most emblematic because it's the most gonzo thing inside the brand and the brand had a lot of gonzo in it, but gonzo before Hunter S. Thompson even had spoken that word. Caligula was the high point of that, I think, and could only have happened when it happened, right? I think I think 1972 would be too early, and I think 1984 would have been too late. It had to happen at approximately the same time movies like Clockwork Orange happened. Clockwork Orange couldn't have happened any earlier. It would have been too, would have everybody would have like gone crazy and committed suicide. It was just. Malcolm McDowell, who would star as Caligula, was coming off of Clockwork Orange. That's the movie he had just done. So he was the hottest actor out there. And then, of course, and then you get guys from the, you know, London Shakespeare, you know, you get Gil Good and Peter O'Toole. Uh, Malcolm McDowell had known and I, I think worked briefly with Helen Mirren just prior to that. She was kind of a young, unknown actress. But he liked her and wanted to sleep with her. So when uh, Teresa Savoy fell out of Caligula, they, they called uh, Helen Mirren and had her come over. So it was electric Kool-Aid acid trip or it was Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I mean, it was in its own way a Hunter S. Thompson novel. It was just out of control. 
and spinning further and further with every passing day. And uh, I was part of, you know, look, I've heard a million things, uh, and I can't tell you if any of them are definitive. I mean, I've heard that Gore Vidal was, A, horrified that he thought that Tinto Bras had completely lost control of the set. Maybe that was Tinto Bras's style. And that Malcolm McDowell was calling the shots. And, and according to Gore Vidal, when actors are controlling a set, you know it's descended into madness. And, but I've also heard that Gore Vidal was, you know, was the first to kind of abandon ship on that project. Also because his original script was written much more accurate to the time uh, historically, and that it was much more explicitly homoerotic, and he was upset that they weren't, you know, paying more uh, respect to that process. And of course, I can't even imagine what Caligula would have been if it had been more homoerotic at that time. I and mean, who knows? Then everybody would have wound up in jail for the rest of their lives, I suppose. But yeah, so when I came to Penthouse, Bob was still alive. I came in 2000, late 2006, 2007, and I came with the sensibilities of a documentary filmmaker. And the first thing I said when I came into Penthouse uh, was, gee, I'd love to do a documentary on Bob Guccione. And at that time, Penthouse was in a massive lawsuit with Guccione. And everybody was, no, you can't, no, don't reach out to him. No, you can't talk to him. No, you can't do any of this because we're in litigation, blah, 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 blah. He would then later, you know, he would die three years later, 2010. And unfortunately, I never met him and never got to interview him. It would have been brilliant to have been able to do that. I was a great interviewer, so I think I could have done a really nice interview with him. But by 2000, probably about 2013, I had become obsessed with the idea first of doing a feature film um, and narrowing the focus to the making of Caligula. Just Bob Guccione's life in that few months period in Rome during the making of Caligula. And that's how I saw it. It's actually one of the things that led me to buy the company uh, because I called my CEO at the time and I said, look, I want to modify or I want you to put a addendum on my contract uh, that allows me to go work on this project. I'll raise the money for it. I'll raise some seed capital to try to get a writer to come do a treatment on it. Call it American Emperor, The Life and Times of Bob Guccione. And I want you to let me do that. And my CEO said to me what he would say many times to me, which is, why the fuck do you want to do something like that? Why are you always going off on these stupid fucking tangents? Can't you just focus on ROI and get real. And he hung up on me. Uh, now, this was a very common conversation because anytime I proposed anything that was outside the normal, you know, push the paper clip here, push the paper clip there, it was met with the same, what are you out of your mind? So it was that very night that I said, you know what? I can't, I can't grow this company. I can never grow. I will never be able to grow this company. I was controlling one division, which was broadcast, which was making all the money and publishing was losing money, and licensing was going nowhere, and digital was loping along, and the only bright, shiny object was was broadcast. But, you know, broadcast, I mean, even in 2013, I was pretty clear that broadcast had an expiration date on it. So I said to myself, how can a humble shop girl such as myself, who does not have a wealthy father or a wealthy husband, buy this company? 
and that started me on this really long, quixotic journey of trying to buy this company, something I was completely unprepared to do. I had to actually, and this is not a joke, I, I that very night uh, Googled President Buys Company, and it took me to a wiki page, and it said MBO, Management Buyout, and I went, oh, Oh, oh well, there's a name for what I'm thinking about doing. So then, you know, I can just once you got once something's happened one time before you, easy. You just deconstruct it. You know, uh, it was not easy, and um, I did not complete that acquisition until February of 2016. It was a hellacious situation, and and I did it with uh, crushing debt and um, ran the company for two years. When you are penthouse, penthouse holds. This really, for some people, it holds this very strong space in their id, in their reptile brain, right? Because they grew up digging it out from under their dad's bed or, you know, rifling through a sock drawer looking for that magazine. So their feelings on Penthouse sometimes are very deeply held and they go back into childhood and it's, it causes people to do some kind of crazy stuff. So, <laughs> so I buy this company on miserable debt and um, run it for two and a half years and actually turn it from being three million negative to uh, slightly positive and I pay down five million dollars in debt and everything's sunny and we're moving toward the day when we're going to be debt free and we're going to have some development capital. And I'm now pitching American Emperor not as a movie, but as a series with six part limited series on Picket, Netflix, Amazon, whatever. Turns out that my CFO who had been working alongside me those two years was actually in the background conspiring to push the company over the edge into bankruptcy, get the lender to call the note. He had a group that would come in and grab the company and he would be sitting in my chair. And in fact, that happened on January 11th of this year and on Monday, two days ago, uh, June 5th, we exited bankruptcy and that CFO, whose name is Don Slaughter, actually had the audacity to show up in court, even though I'm suing him for conspiracy to defraud, and a wonderful group came in out of the blue very low-profile group of people, or really it's two people, um, young guys out of the Czech Republic and bid $11.2 million for Penthouse against another group that was not so swell and uh, bought the company for eleven point two. And they don't want to run it and they don't want to change it and they believe in the vision and we are out of our mess, which was an eight, eight months, not eight months of just pure hell. It started actually before the bankruptcy. It really started the day that I understood what he was doing and I terminated him, which was September of last year. So it's been going for quite some time. But you catch me. You're really the first time I've slowed down in 48 hours because this all was quite whirlwind on Monday. Nobody knew how it was going to go, and nobody ever thought it would go for $11 million. I think everybody was thinking it was going to be six or seven. And then the two big uh, companies in the world that control the Internet and what is commonly referred to as free porn started bidding against each other. And happily, the, the ones that I really like who will not 
change anything about this brand and who will trust the vision uh, are the ones that came out ahead. And you, if you ever saw the, and if you ever saw this, <laughs> the one of the two partners, I mean, you know, he's, he had his jeans and his t-shirt on and, uh, he looked like he was actually dropping off a couple of burgers with Grubhub, you know, and he was like, uh, I'll bid, uh, 10.2. That <laughs> was crazy. And the other guy gets up in his suit with his lawyers, uh, 10.5. And then up, up comes Robert, uh, 10.8. You know, anyway, so it bit all the way up to 11.2. And, um, of course, now he's on a plane back home and stunned. <laughs> Stop. Why? What? What do I own? But I will tell you, I'll tell you, like everybody, he walked in here. Yeah, when he when he bought the company, he had not even walked into the offices yet. It he he found out it was for auction and and he sh- like on a Thursday, wired in some money to hold his spot so he could bid on Friday. Got on a plane on Saturday, wound up in the U.S. on Sunday and bid eleven point two on Monday, and didn't have a clue what the assets were, what the issues were. He just it was there. He thought it was a great idea, uh, and God bless him. Yeah, it's a brand new day here as of the last 48 hours, and it's actually a, a really good day because the company's been kind of hamstrung with its debt and with clowns and the con men and the criminals that surround it. And, and through that process, I, I always thought back to Guccione, who was, you know, constantly surrounded by people kind of like the wolf pack. I always think of them as the wolf pack, right? They're always circling and they're just waiting for that moment when the lamb steps away from the rest of the of the herd and is easy prey. And uh, I think, unfortunately, I just did a couple of times and, and, it, and it happened. But back to Caligula, prior to me doing the acquisition, there was a parent corp, FriendFinder Networks. And, uh, you know, there's, they were a digital company and uh, they were also, you know, like bankers. I mean, there was a whole banker kind of analytics sensibility. And this brand did not fit that at all at all. And they didn't understand us. And I, you know, we were 7% of a huge company and we were just the annoying 7% because I was constantly lobbying for resources and demanding attention. And they would get really irritated. At one point, the CEO circulated an email throughout the entire company as like 260 employees. And it said, if Kelly Holland ever calls you or emails, you just don't take it because she's going to be asking you for resources. Just forward it to me and I'll deal with it. So we were annoying and, and we never got what we wanted or what we needed and, and we just, uh, you know, were a constant irritation to them. During that period, there was a warehouse in the, in the UK where there was a ton of things that were stored because the company was founded in London in 1965 and when those offices closed, they just threw everything in storage. You know, there it sat for 40 years. <laughs> People were paying on it. They didn't even know what they were paying on. Companies were paying and paying and paying. And then somebody finally went, what is this? And they were going to junk it all. And I said, no. And I flew over to London and spent a week there going through 350 boxes of documents and stuff and brought things over here. That is how we wind up with all of the assets of Caligula sitting in a warehouse in Hollywood on Highland, I buy the company and nobody remembers that it's there and everybody fails to mention it and I don't know it's there and the storage space is billing 
friend finder networks and friend finder networks is ignoring the bills until the point comes that um, they're going to just take it all and toss it into a dumpster. And simultaneously, I was in Cannes in France uh, at a trade show and I get this call from this wacky guy with a German accent who says, can I come to Cannes and meet with you? I think, oh God, I'm like, why? But okay, I'm just like, okay, I'll just be nice. And I have, you know, one day where I don't book meetings from morning till night. And I said, yeah, you can, sure. And this kid walks in, Alexander walks in, and he's got this book. And he says, uh, 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 this is my thesis. You know, I went, what? He goes, I wrote a thesis on Caligula and the lost cut and Tinto Bras' lost cut. And, you know, he hands it to me and it's beautifully bound. And I open it up and he's, you know, I don't know, rambling about finding film clips and matching them based on the striations of the tape. And just like, what? No, God, is this guy going to pull out a knife? Like, what kind of nut is this? But I, <laughs> he didn't, and he's not a nut. You know, I started talking to him, and he was so impassioned. And, and it was about something that was so specific and arcane in a way, you know, the lost cut of Tinto Bras. You know, <laughs> I was just listening to it. But none of that mattered because I just saw his passion for this project, and it so mirrored my passion for this brand. I had full respect for that. And I thought, God, anybody who come from Stuttgart, Germany to show me this has got to be pretty, pretty serious about it. And somewhere in the conversations, uh, either there in Cannes or later when we were here, I think it was later he came to visit here, he said, uh, well, you know, when they, there was a company called Image Entertainment that had released Caligula on, on Blu-ray. He said, you know, when they did the documentary, they pulled a bunch of reels out of the film storage in Hollywood. And I said, what film storage in Hollywood? He went, the, the, the vault. I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And we started calling, and sure enough, it took about a day, and we worked our way to Iron Mountain, and they said, oh, there you are. We were just getting ready to throw this out. I went, wow, stop. I was crazy. If we, you know, I know everybody says this, uh, for various things that happen in their lives, but I will truly tell you, if we wrote this, people would just say, what a stupid script. That never happens. I mean, essentially, I always feel that that's my life, just something you know, that's the summary of my life. No way. That didn't happen. But it did. I and mean, literally, we went down there, and there were 350, 400 dusty, crushed boxes, you know, so much for climate control. And uh, there are pictures of it. I mean, Alex, I think it's there in the documentary, Alex was just going through boxes like it was Christmas, and he was five. And, you know, oh, look, so pulled a bunch of stuff out of there, and uh, it still sits there, and it's been sitting there. We actually owe money on it, although they're not going to toss it in the dumpster. And I said to our new owners, <laughs> the, the new guy from the last 48 hours, I said, we need to get this out of the warehouse. So it will, in fact, be coming out fairly shortly. I would say within the next uh, two weeks, we're going to get it out. out. We are going to get it into a more true climate control over here, and we're going to start to go through it calmly and 
methodically as opposed to the chaos of Alexander in those day in that first day with 400 dusty boxes to go through. And uh, we do have a group that we're in discussions with that wants to do a license so that they can do a restoration of the film in 4K. And that restoration may may include reassembling it according to Tinto Bross's notes and according to Tinto actually edited an hour uh, before uh, either before it got pulled or after it got pulled he may have kept some work prints and just did an hour but at some point he edited an hour and we found that hour in that warehouse and so it is partially to uh, follow that cut and reassemble then follow his notes to to do the rest of the edit and then rely on Alexander and his conversations with Tinto and the fact that they both have a common vision on, on the fact that it was really, the movie was not meant to be a serious historical representation of the time. It was really meant to be a commentary on power and a bit of a dark comedy, a black comedy. And so Alexander gets that and, and has had many conversations with Tinto about that. So should Tinto not be able to participate based, you know, just given his age and his health, uh, I think Alex would certainly be able to carry this forward and fill in the gaps and, you know, answer the questions and erase the question marks about what could have, should have, would have been had it been edited 30 years ago. Have you met Tinto Brass? I have not. Alex has. You know, I think that those were some of the high points of his life was sitting down to talk to Tinto, who he described as extremely charming and gracious and warm. No, so I no, I have not had the pleasure of meeting him. I met I met Katarina and I liked her very much when I met her. I met her in Cannes actually. She came there. She came there, she came with her niece, who worked as a, acted as a translator, and we had a very cordial lunch. Uh, Alex was there, and I thought we were all good, and we all talked about the collective and getting this out and everybody being able to participate, and then it, it seemed to have all gone to hell about a month later. So, Now, being a filmmaker yourself, have you ever experienced what Tinto experienced? Have you ever had a project taken away from you and recut? No, because I've never done a project. I've Well, first of all, I'm a... I am a control freak and a bit of a megalomaniac, so I never got into a project where anybody had the right, but I also never did a project big enough, I, I would imagine, that would warrant someone having the right to do that. So I've never worked on a mainstream project that was so big that, that there was an executive producer who would have had that control. I can imagine it because my closest analogy would be this company. And this company before I owned it, which is when you know, you know, and it's not ego and it's not perspective. It's not a personal perspective and it's not ego or hubris or arrogance. You know that there are certain decisions that should be made because you know what you're working with. I know this brand. I'm trying to think of who might know this brand better that's still alive. I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. I'm not I think the family knows it. His son, Nick Guccione, Nicky Guccione, who I'm close with the family. Some of the, some of the members of the family, you know, certainly knows the brand from his time that he was involved in it and knows it better than anyone walking the planet knows it. As far as the brand today and over the last 
10 years, I don't think there's anybody alive that knows it better than I know it. And so consequently, sometimes that blinds you. But there's many times when there's decisions about the direction of the brand. And, you know, I used to have owners, owners that just didn't get it at all. And it was frustrating because you knew that there was no, no argument, no number of spreadsheets and calculations and analytics that could ever actually get them to a point of understanding where the thing had to go. So I get that frustration. You directed over 200 films in your career, plus doing God knows how many other things, cinematography, production management, editing, all of these different aspects. But you've been so tied up in the taking control of, of Penthouse and all of these, what sounds like trials and tribulations over the last few years. Do you miss doing the creative work? Do you miss doing the filmmaking? Yeah, absolutely. I stopped directing, and believe me, trust me, if it's 200, it's because they miss, they just simply miss the other 800, because when you do adult, they don't really keep track of what you're doing. But yeah, I mean, it's been uh, countless movies. But yeah, I mean, I love the process. And, uh, and the great thing about the adult process is it doesn't go on so long that it bores you to tears, right? You don't get sick of it because you're just in, you're doing it and you're out of it. And the projects never last more than, a, I mean, from, from pre-production and script to, to finished product, it's never more than a few months. So you don't have time to, you know, familiarity breeding contempt on a project. You don't, you also don't have the time to spin on a project because you can get that where it's like, oh, but if I just, oh, well, is that? And then you wake up the next morning and it's like, oh, but if I did this, and you know, you can become obsessive with things. You just have to let them go. It's kind of like television. You just got to move on. So I love the process. And, uh, however, I became the uh so I was I was the executive producer and uh you know kind of creative person up until 2010. In 2010, so three little over 3 years. In 2010, I was asked to become the president of the company. That's when we bought Friend Finder Networks and my the president of Penthouse then became the CEO of Friend Finder. He would later be the one that would hit me over the head with a two by four all the time and tell me I was out of my fucking mind and didn't know what I was doing. But and by the way, I loved him. He was a brilliant mentor, but you know, he was just you know, he mentored with a two by four. But at that moment he said to me, You got you have a choice. You can continue to direct and I will hire someone who is the president of Penthouse who will have the authority to fire you if they choose. And then he paused and he looked at me and he said, and you know, you don't get along well with other people, right? You don't play well with others. So let's just say there could be a fairly high probability that that could happen. Or you can become the president of the company and you got to give up the creative. And... Well, that's a real Solomon's dilemma, you know. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll become the president and I'll sneak back into production. But that never happened. And um, and that was it. I mean, I that was it. That I I had to walk at that point. And I and I also said at that point, I said I don't have any idea what a president does. To tell you the truth, I don't have a corporate background. I don't have an MBA. That's not me. And he said, uh, you know, it's no big deal. Uh, I have a budget. Uh, you can copy it for the next year, uh, increase everything by 16% and meet your, meet your projections. That's all you have to do. 
<laughs> and he walked away and literally moved the next day to San Francisco to take over the control of Friend Finder. And it was like, here, here's the budget, you know, show 16% growth and you're fine. And uh, yeah, I was thrown into the deep end. So kind of like, what's an MBO? Oh yeah. Okay. So throwing myself into the deep end. So I miss it very much. And in those years, I could not direct because, you know, the, the, the law had come down from on high. It was like, she shall not be on a set. Then I bought the company and uh, I was so busy that I never just quite got the moment in those two years, but I kept promising myself that once we had the horrific debt paid down, I was going to give myself as a exit present, exiting from debt, I was going to give myself a present of like a $70,000 budget, and I was going to do a big movie, and then that never happened, and it's ironic, I was just talking to the production group today, and I said, okay, it's a new world, and here's what I want to see in that new world. Here's how we're going to do monthly production because we have a we have a lot of requirements. We have ten channels around the world. They all require content. Uh, there's minimum requirements every month that we have to fulfill. There are certain benchmarks we have to meet. You know, it's you know, so we have we have those requirements. But I said, uh, here's how we're going to meet all those requirements in this new world. But we're going to put into the budget on a quarterly basis, one big movie. So for a year, and I looked at my head of production and post-production who also directs, and I said, not because I didn't want to be piggish, I said, Drew, you'll do two, and I'll do two. And I already know the two I'll do. So let's hope now. And I will also tell you, throughout this eight-month period, it's about six months in bankruptcy and then a couple of months before when I had found out what was happening, so in that eight months of hell or eight months of the apocalypse, um, I had thought as we got further and further down into the system, because the bankruptcy system is a very corrupt system. It's just insanely corrupt. Yeah, I, I won't even describe it to you, but it's just uh, it's a it's the most Kafka esque thing I've, I've ever experienced. And uh, you know, about a month ago, two months ago, I had to start really reconciling myself to the fact that I might, you know, that that. That on Monday, that last Monday, two days ago, I might walk out of that courthouse and not walk back into this office. And that is a that was a distinct possibility. And there were times when it looked like odds on ninety percent chance that's the way it would go. Now that doesn't disturb me because my life is always, you know, eighty three yards and three seconds on the clock. I mean, it's always everything is snatched from the jaws of defeat at the last possible instant and and I've it's happened so many times to me now that I anticipate it will happen so while everyone around me is falling apart going oh my god I always say don't worry it's going to work out and it always does at least so far at least until the day I die and that will be the day where I go wow it didn't work out today but uh, there was a moment where I thought you know what I could be out of being the owner of penthouse and back out like directing movies. And, I, you know, it's not such a bad deal. I mean, I would probably have had a really good time. And I actually had already come up with a couple of concepts and series. I was not quite to the point where I was going to write them, but um, I had them sketched out. And, and yeah, I miss it. And I'm hoping now, uh, finally, uh, you know, I'm going to actually get back into it. I probably have less tolerance for it now than I did a few years ago when I was doing it because, you know, it's 
16-hour days on grimy sets with, you know, sometimes whining talent and yada, yada, and all the things that go along with it. But so in my old age, I probably have less tolerance for it, but I still love the process. I love the creative process. And and I love the decision-making process because when you're a director slash producer and, and, you know, in these small environments, you don't have the luxury of having line producers and executive producers and assistant directors and you don't have that whole substructure. It's just you. <laughs> you're doing everything. You know, you, you have a crew, but you're basically the producer and director. And I've often said that the best executives in the world come from either A, an executive position in the military, or as a producer, because you, A, you just have to get it done. The uh, failure is never an option. You have to move many, many people to do things that they don't always want to do under difficult circumstances, like, hi, I know it's only 38 degrees and you're in the desert and the wind's blowing, but yes, you have to have sex on the rock, okay? So you have to move a lot of people to do things that they don't like to do, and you have to get it, and you don't go home until you get it. And if you're there at 4 o'clock in the morning, then you're there at 4 o'clock in the morning. I've actually shot a 24-hour cycle one time where we came as the sun was rising and we were wrapping when the sun was already up the next day at a drive-in theater in El Monte, in El Monte if you know California. So um, it just prepares you for making decisions, being adaptable and flexible, being resilient and getting it done no matter what. And I, I also miss that because it's, always, it's a challenge to always be able to come up with a solution. So it's like... It's like setting, it's like setting these impossible tasks, you know, for yourself and then completing them. And then you set the next impossible task and you complete it. And, uh, so it's, uh, it's a great, it's a great, a great experience. With Alexander's film, the, the Mission Caligula documentary, it seems like there's a lot of uncertainty. And from what you're telling me, it seems like up until two days ago, there was a lot of uncertainty about a lot of things. So now, is there more certainty that his project, your project with him, that that is going to go forward? Absolutely. Absolutely. And yes, there was a lot of uncertainty. And, you know, look, we weren't talking about it publicly. You know, nobody wanted to say publicly, well, we don't know where we'll be in a week. Listen, I've, I've, got, a, I've got people that want to do a series of pick the outlet. I don't know where I'm not going to, I'm not going to name the names of the obvious outlets because I don't want to, I don't want to jinx it. But I've been in conversations on a reality series about the weirdness of women running uh, what is a classic iconic men's brand because my editor of the magazine is a woman. My um, COO is a woman. My uh, head of um, production coordination is a woman. There's a lot of key positions in this company that my, you know, my sort of legal person, uh, she's not a lawyer, but my paralegal that runs those operations. So I would say there's probably more women working in this company than men. That was never by design. It was just, you know, I hired the best people and then turned around and went, wow, there's a lot of women in this business or in this company. So there's a series. Now, ironically, the people working on the series that are have it in development must not ever read the newspaper because they call me and I have never said, oh, by the way, (laughs) 
I'm in a chapter 11 and I could lose the company and, you know, I'll be on the street at that point. So I have a lunch with them. On, no, I'm sorry. I have a dinner with them on June 19th and happily, you know, they wanted to actually have a This is so ironic. They wanted to have a dinner. I think it was tomorrow night. And I emailed back and I said, you know, I'm sorry, I can't meet on the whatever day that is, the 8th. Uh, can we push it? Because I thought, you know what, if all if it goes badly on Monday and all hell breaks loose, I'm not going to have the stamina to go to dinner with them and break the news. I'm just not going to be, just, I don't want to do that. I'm going to need some distance between the day that, that life, you know, caved in and I have to tell them that there's no series because there's no head of penthouse to do the series about. So I thought, well, yeah, but by the like 16th or 19th, whenever it is, I'll be recuperated, but I don't have to tell them that now. It's all good. So, um, yeah, so now we move forward. Uh, like I said, I have a group that wants to do the 4K restoration, and we'll pick that back up. So the court has to sign a bunch of papers, and there's a bunch of bureaucratic minutiae back and forth. So this thing uh, technically closes on the 15th. So at this point, we're sort of in a limbo. Um, but uh, as a matter of fact, I was just on the phone today. We now have the new name of the of the corporate entity. It was Penthouse Global Media. Now it's going to be Penthouse World Media. We decided not to make too many changes with things. But you know, we're in we're in the breach right now. But we'll be out of it on the fifteenth. Uh, Alex just got into town yesterday, and is in for a film festival. And we will proceed apace with uh, the project. And uh, yeah, I uh, and I'm thankful. I'm thankful for. So many things, but I am especially thankful uh, that I, I would tell you that ranks in kind of the top five that I'm thankful for because it's a great project and uh, who would want to disappoint Alexander? You know, it's like, it's like telling a little boy that Santa Claus actually doesn't exist. So I want to see him move forward with this project and uh, I think it's... Uh, yeah, I think it's a great project and we do a lot with it. And also it, it becomes sort of a companion piece to the series American Emperor, which I also believe is amazing. And so I think all of these things, that's why this company, God, I can't even, you know, it hasn't even sunk into me the bullets that were dodged in all of this because there is so much potential in, in this brand and all of its properties and all of its, you know, pieces. I bought back in Omni, the magazine of science and science fiction. There's so many things to be done with that. And uh, that's why when I bought the company in February of 2016, it was so exciting. And everybody was just at the, you know, like horses in the, in the stalls at the racetrack, just waiting for the gate to open. And, you know, we had to get through all of the horrific debt, you know, it was $5 million in, in debt payment that we did as opposed to $5 million in business development that we were able to do. Now we emerge debt-free uh, with people who believe in the brand, that want to move it forward, that have the capacity to move it forward, and the possibilities are unlimited at this point. I mean, there's incredible things that we can do, and Caligula and everything that surrounds the project Alexander wants to do is a big piece of that. The impression I've gotten over the last hour speaking to you is you're not going to be one who just kind of sits on their laurels now and says, okay, yeah, great. We own the company. Now I'm going to take it easy for a little bit. It seems like you are probably already running and doing the next thing. 
Yeah, I mean, look, laurels are, first of all, laurels are not that soft of a pillow to sit on because nobody cares at the end of the day. Uh, the day that I closed on the acquisition, February 19th at 1.38 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, and I closed, and I took that afternoon to respond to texts and answer calls and emails from friends who congratulated me. And then that night, someone called to congratulate me, a very good friend, and he said something very prophetic. He said, congratulations, now get ready. I said, get ready for what? He said, now you, now people will come for you because <laughs> you have something that they want, so they're going to come for you. And I said, oh, Stuart, you're being, you know, you're being paranoid, but, you know, little did I know. But there isn't any time. First of all, there's no time because you have to keep the machine moving forward. It has to move forward, and nobody cares what you did five minutes ago or five days ago. The successful auction and acquisition on Monday is simply a, another gauntlet that's thrown, and it's like, okay, we're ready to go. Now what are you going to do? I mean, now I'm under more pressure than ever, right? Uh, because now all of the impediments to moving these projects forward have been removed, and there is a uh, rightful expectation from everybody that I'm going to do it. So you've been talking about it, now do it. So there's that. There's also the fact that, like, who wants to? Who wants to sit on your laurels? I mean, I don't even know what that is. You want to move forward because then you did it. My, here's my problem. There's too many things to do. There's so many things to do. I want to do a science series on Netflix based on Omni. I want to do an anthology series like the old Twilight Zone based on the science fiction that we publish in Omni. Uh, I, so I want to do lots of media projects with Omni. I want to do the series uh, Picket Netflix Amazon, the limited series American Emperor with uh, uh, the life and times of Guccione starring Clive uh, uh, Owen. Clive, if you're listening, uh, you make a great Bob Guccione. I want to uh, do licensing. I think there's licensing is, you know, in, in, the, in the bunny world, uh, their media division loses money and the entire company's propped up by licensing. Ours is like the inverse. The media division makes money and we do nothing with licensing because we never had, since the, since the loss of Bob Guccione, uh, we never had somebody that invested in development capital in brick and mortar. I think the possibilities are limitless. I want to do British pubs, the penthouse pub, because that is our, that's our beginning is in London in 65. And I want to do it like a 1965 pub with music from that period and girls in little, you know, schoolgirl outfits and great, you know, micro brews and whiskeys. I want to do, uh, when it is legal nationally. I want to do a variation on a uh, dispensary, but I want to do a, a, a health and wellness center, a penthouse health and wellness center, where it's all cannabis products, it's penthouse aphrodisiacs, it's lectures, it's cooking classes. It's In California, recreational was just legalized um, on January 1st, but what does that mean? Now it's a whole bunch of people that never had a, a cookie that was laced with pot who are ODing and winding up in freaking emergency rooms freaking out. I mean, you've got all these occasional users who think it's oh so easy and then all of a sudden, you know, they eat the wrong thing or they smoke the wrong thing and they flip. So I think there's just a need for a safe space and we know in retail also 
retail, I mean, you know, the only thing that keeps everyone from buying everything at Amazon is if you offer people an experience. And so if there's a reason to come to a place, I don't know if you've ever been into New York, into Manhattan and gone to the to the um, Apple store by NYU, but it has an entire upstairs where they do music, lectures, uh, performance, uh, exhibit exhibition space. It's great because you have a reason to be in the Apple store other than buying an iPad. But consequently, you happen to buy an iPad when you're there and you've got some money in your pocket. So I want to do uh, dispensaries like that. I want to do um, incredible, well, I want to do a bunch of incredible stuff. So for me, it's, oh my God, can I get all this done before I die? And, oh yeah, I already started another company because I thought, well, you know, I do animal rescue, by the way. I have a 501c3 and I thought, damn, I got a lot of horses and goats to feed. So if I lose this company and I find myself on the street with my, you know, computer and my papers, I got to get going. So I had had a company, a concept that I had envisioned 10 years ago with Playgirl, actually, and uh, we have gone about putting, starting to put that together and talk to tech VCs, three different ones, and they're all pretty hot on it, and I think they'll fund it. It's called My Intimacy Coach. It's a lot like Talkspace, if you happen to know what Talkspace is, but it's on intimate issues, intimacy issues, and uh, so I'm, I'm going to launch that. That has nothing to do with Penthouse, but that's just uh, I just think it's a brilliant product for a troubled time <laughs> without going into detail. But yeah, so my problem is there's too many things to do. And and unfortunately, you know, I don't believe I'll live to be 120. So tick, tick, tick on that clock. I need to get this stuff going. So, Well, Ms. Holland, thank you so much for your time. I know that you're very busy person, as we've just <laughs> found out. Yeah, come on. I got stuff to do. I got to get off the phone. It's my pleasure. And uh, yeah, and stay tuned. Keep in touch with Alex. And uh, we're going to get the get the uh, Caligula project uh, back up and running. Right, we are back, and we were talking about Mission Caligula. I recorded Alexander's interview, and then a week later, I talked with Kelly. And like in the interim, is when the bigger news broke about her almost losing the company, and then getting the company back, and then the funding. It sounds like is going to be there for this restoration of Caligula. And I just want to make sure that folks understand is that. This will probably be Alexander at some point taking that work print that he's talked about, the work print of Caligula, where I think he said like 89 minutes of it were done, and then kind of using the original elements to recreate that. And then the rest of the film will be done in the style of Tinto Brass, unless Brass's notes or Brass himself, who is still a very viable filmmaker, unless that 
happens, it'll be done in the style of Tinto Brass. And I think that Alexander knows his style well enough to be able to do that. It's kind of like Walter Murch coming in and redoing Touch of Evil based upon the memos, those kind of things. So I'm very, very excited about this because it does sound, and I don't want to get my hopes up because, you know, things happen, but in a world where Other Side of the Wind might actually have its premiere very soon, I'm very excited that Tinto Brass's Caligula, with name over the title kind of thing, that Tinto Brass's Caligula might finally actually see the light of day. Anybody who has listened to the previous podcast we did about Caligula knows I love Caligula. And I would love, I would love to see something closer to Tinto Brass's original version. Tinto Brass. Is a fascinating guy, uh, a difficult guy, I think, in a lot of ways, a, a contradictory guy, but a passionate filmmaker, uh, somebody whose commitment to political and social issues is very powerful and very vibrant, and that shows in Caligula. I, I, I want to see a version of his Caligula that is somewhat closer to his idea of what it should be than the movie that was released. And I love the movie that was released, but I, I want to see this other version. You know, I've got that Blade Runner uh, briefcase in the other room with, you know, several different cuts of the film. I'm thinking, what would be the perfect sort of box to put this thing in with all the various cuts of the film? Oh, my God, I have no idea, but I have that box, too, so... <laughs> Uh, yeah, actually, I do as well. That's we we should get together sometime and trade boxes. I'm just thinking, what would you put? Uh, you know, all the various cuts of Caligula in with a script, and you know, all the other uh, the sundry items that the nerds like us might want. A horse would be good. A scroll would be good. Um... Maybe it would be like the big coin, you know, and then you like take the coin apart, and then inside are all the discs or something. I don't know. It could be the coin with blood packs. But then, you know, once you burst them, it wouldn't be any good. So, but yeah, that, that trickle of blood from the eye would be really excellent. It would have to be a perpetual fountain, which I think would be a miracle. Yeah, we live in interesting times. Not even just the political stuff, but just the idea of these movies that are finally possibly seeing the light of day. And when it comes to... Caligula, the movie that did come out, I do want to make it clear that, yes, I, as you do, Maitland, and as Rob does, I enjoy that one as well. There are just times where I feel like it feels like something's off sometimes, you know, and and you get that feeling with certain movies where you're just like, gosh, it feels like this isn't necessarily everything that we should be seeing, or there might be pieces missing, or this might be arranged differently. You know, I'm going through this whole thing right now where I'm studying uh, Exorcist 2, The Heretic, and as I'm watching that and I see like this weird Yuri Geller scene just kind of wedged into this movie where it makes absolutely no sense where it's connected to the scene before it or the scene after it, I'm just like, yeah, this feels off. And there are certain times where you're watching movies and you're just like, yeah, it doesn't feel like this is 100% the filmmaker's vision. And the closer we get to seeing the filmmaker's vision and then to your point you know uh, all of us having that blade runner box set yeah 
go ahead. I can still have the original one. I can have the one that I saw earlier, and I can have this new one as well. And that's what I want, is to have that option. Today I want to watch the one with the voiceover. Tomorrow I want to watch the one with this. This uh, the, Today I want to see this thing. So just give me all of that stuff, you know? Give me all of those different cuts of Caligula. And I would actually, if if I could use the D word, I would demand that. Because um, I, I remember the first box set that I bought when I got my DVD player was Criterion's uh, release of Brazil. And in there is the Terry Gilliam cut, and then there's the Universal cut, which is 90 minutes. And it was actually the TV version. And then you get to watch those back-to-back, and you're just like, yeah, I can totally see how they took this thing apart and put it all back together uh, to, to completely different film. And for me, I, I love being able to match those up against each other and, and to have that experience. Like we talked about earlier, um, if, if you've never made a film, but you're interested in film beyond uh, the, the average person uh, is just an entertainment, but, but really kind of understanding the nuts and bolts of what goes into it. I mean, this is um, it's, it's, it's a beautiful opportunity that you could have to, compare and contrast and you can really learn so much about uh, the the fine art of editing and storytelling it is and frankly you know ultimately i always want to see the longest possible version of a film even when i recognize that it's possible that the longest version isn't the best version but i'd like to see the longest version and part of that is i i went to film school i i cut lots of movies when I was in film school, I, I won't say I was a great cutter, but I learned how to cut movies. And it's always fascinating to see the other cut. Sometimes it's a better cut. Sometimes it's not as good a cut. Sometimes the cut you do really fast because you need to keep it moving is actually better than the one that you liked more. It's all about seeing how those choices are made and how stories are told. It's just like reading the original manuscript of a novel and then reading the version that was edited and published. They're different, and sometimes one works better than the other in one way, and sometimes the other works better in another way. It's If you're a reader or a film viewer, it's absolutely fascinating to see the differences. Sometimes you end up with the French plantation scene, and sometimes you don't. And I, I remember when I first got into film in high school, the guy who was notorious for going in and adding more stuff to his films, it almost became a joke, was Oliver Stone. He would do this. He did it with JFK. He did it with some other films of his. And then I remember the the ones filmmakers who did the opposite, where they went in and they said, eh, we're going to take a few minutes out, and that'll be our new version. And that was Joel and Ethan Cohen with Blood Simple, where they didn't take out a lot. It was like a minute, but they just felt that those little tiny tweaks just made it that much better. Frankly, anybody who has ever made anything, whether it was a a crocheted blanket or a painting or or a macrame box, knows that, yeah, that that you have to make that decision. It's a little more, a little less. You decide it. Ultimately, what you decide is what the finished version is. And yet, there are all those other versions that might have been. And that infinity of possible versions is fascinating, frankly. 
Yeah. I mean, it's a rabbit hole that you can fall down and never get out of, but it's nonetheless fascinating because for every yes, there was a no, and for every right, there was a left. I just remember someone saying, and I don't know who said it, that um, you know nothing is ever finished, it's just abandoned. So <laughs> there just comes a time when you got to walk away. There's a point at which somebody walks away, and then it's done. And th- there you go. Um, unless you're George Lucas, and then you just keep re-editing your movie. I'm somebody who makes things, and there is a point at which I, I say, that thing's done, and I'm not going to do any more to it. And yet I, I can look at some of those things and think, I, I completely see how I could have extended that just a tiny bit more, but I didn't. So it's done. It, it's a hugely arbitrary thing. So what are some of the other films, Modi, that you guys would like to, to see? I mean, there are the big ones, right? Magnificent Ambersons, Greed, those are the ones that always come to my mind. What are some of the other ones that you guys know of that are out there that you would actually like to see finally come to the light of day? I would love to see a longer version of Wicker Man. And I think that, that's, but I don't think I ever will, because as far as far as I know, all those extra materials were turned into road fill. So I guess that's never going to happen. But I would love to see it because Wicker Man is absolutely one of my favorite films. And I can completely see how there could be another five, seven, even ten minutes to that movie that would be extraordinary. Just off the top of my head, I mean, just the big ones. I mean, like you notice there, Wicker Man, I mean, obviously Greed, um, that really long edit of Apocalypse Now. <laughs> I mean, there's just things like that that, uh, that are out there. And, and then I have a laundry list of, of movies that are, have been hidden away that we haven't seen, or there's been, you know, really crappy versions that have come out, or, and, and you know that, there's got to be something out there somewhere. And just the only one that I can come off the top of my head when it comes to uh, to that kind of if there's one that I would love to see that hiding in a vault somewhere and I hope they haven't thrown it out is um, when we had uh, uh, Bob Downey on, you know, five or six years ago. And they did all those lovely restorations. The folks over at Criterion and um, uh, the Film Foundation did of his short films and Putney Swope. Uh, I talked to him about Pound and he was like, I, he's like, I don't even know. I don't even know where it is. You know, So that might be like living in the MGM library somewhere and nobody knows where that is. But that one seems to be the one feature of his from that period that seems to have disappeared except for really bad you know, bootleg video version that I got from... Steve over at uh, Shock Cinema, probably, you know, almost 20 years ago. <laughs> it's the only way I've ever been able to see it. I would love to see a super long version of The Devils. I mean, there must be so much footage. I'm sure a ton of it is lost, but I bet there is stuff left, and I would love to see every single inch of it. Yeah, some people mix up director's cuts with assembly cuts, and there are some movies where... Like I think you were just talking about, Maitland, I would love to see just the assembly cut of certain things. Like I would love to see the assembly cut, that first thing where the editor took all of those dailies and all that stuff and just kind of strung them all together. I'd love to see that for for El Topo or for Holy Mountain. You know, some of those things where I just would love to see even just alternate takes of stuff just to to see more of the filmmaking process just because there are certain filmmakers, I mean, God 
David Lynch is another one, certain filmmakers where I would love to just see their process. I would like it if somebody, and I don't think that anybody has done a fan edit of this, and thank God for fan editors, I would love to see a fan edit of Wild at Heart, where they reintegrated all that extra footage that David Lynch released a few years ago. You know, let's let's see the what three and a half hour version of Wild at Heart. Why not? I'll sit through that any day. You know what? I'd love to see a long version of a Serbian film. I mean, that I think that it, that it's a kick-ass movie, and not kick-ass in a fun way. And I would love to see a longer version of it. Well, if we ever cover a Serbian film, I know who to ask now. Yeah. I mean, that that was one of those movies that I think at a point when I felt like, okay, yeah, I've seen it all. A Serbian film really did affect me in a way that uh, a lot of movies don't. So, yeah, I could take take some more of that because it really knocked me out. We were talking about Argento from both angles. We were talking about Deep Red and the various cuts of that. And then, you know, of course, Maitland, you're kind of our our go-to person for Argento. Now, Rob, I know you bought, what was it, Tenebrae? Like, didn't they do tons of restoration on Tenebrae? Um, yeah, Don May and the folks over at Synapse did Tenebrae. They've also done Phenomena, and they just put out Suspiria, which we'll be talking about later this year. But that uh, Suspiria restoration is amazing, and there's certain things in there that, uh, because they cleaned up that print, you can see so much clearer certain pieces of information hiding in the background that, you know, for years I've been looking at this movie, and I'm like, oh, wow. That's new. So that's not even a new edit. That's just a better looking picture. And I would so like to see that. And, you know, I've I've seen the new Suspiria, so I would definitely like to talk about the Suspirias sometime in the future. I know on our schedule we're supposed to talk about it in October, but the new one doesn't come out until November. So you'll be able to uh, speak from authority, uh, I guess, before we will. It'll be an interesting thing to talk about, for sure. I can't believe they're releasing the new Suspiria in November rather than late September or October. I mean, you release horror movies in October, right? I mean, isn't that the thing? Like around Halloween? Yeah. I have no idea. I I have no idea. It's like releasing, you know, the thing in the summertime. I never understood that. You know, a movie set in wintertime, go ahead and release it in the winter. But a scary movie, release it in the fall. It's natural. Wasn't It's a Wonderful Life originally released in the summer? But at least there's summer parts to that, I suppose. But Well, yeah, there's the spring dance at the school and, you know, yeah, I guess there are summer parts of it. But it has a certain autumnal quality to it. But, they, you know. Well, especially now, since we see it every time at wintertime, we kind of all associate it with winter, I imagine. And the falling snow and the freezing river that George is going to jump. Oh, spoilers. My bad. Don't don't even start me on spoilers. I I, I have a personal <laughs> place in my personal hell for people who complain about spoilers of seventy year old films. Dude, you don't know how it's a wonderful life ends. I not my problem, really not. <laughs> what what the the man in the moon gets a rocket in the eye? Oh no, I haven't gotten around to watching that yet. Oh god. Yeah, we can't talk about that. So, Rob, thank you for coming on the show today. What have you been busy with lately, sir? Um, it's just life. It's it's work, and it's a new house I'm fixing up with my lovely bride. And um, uh, I'm 
guest curator on if you're in the Detroit area. There is a uh, art show at the Cranbrook Art Museum on punk rock graphics. And I was helping with that to bring in um, uh, Michigan and Detroit-related material from the period from the late 70s and early 80s. And um, also working on my um, Night Arts Challenge, which um, I think I talked about before on the show, uh, was an extension of the first part of the Orbit book that I did, which was on the Detroit punk rock scene. So um, I'm going to have an interactive website up soon. And then in... um, in 2019, I'll have three compilation records of released, unreleased, and other material uh, related to that scene that I'm really excited about. So I'm putting that together now. So that's been the big stuff for me and um, trying to stay out of jail. And I believe, Maitland, you're actually calling us from jail right now. Is that correct? Well, let's not noise that about too much because, you know. No, bad for my reputation, but uh, or maybe or maybe not. I, how much more could I damage my reputation? Um, but actually, I'm still working on republishing vintage gay novels. Uh, I have just done the first of two completely original gay vintage reprints for Riverdale Avenue Books, uh, Naked Launch, which is a 17th century pirate novel. And I am about to deliver Naked Launch Part 2, which is more naked 17th century pirate adventures. And I have to say, those books are so much fun. They really are. They're terrific pirate adventures. You know, it's it's frigging in the rigging, you know, uh, gunfire on the high seas. <laughs> they, are, they are absolutely terrific books. They are a lot of fun. Really good characterization. Frankly, uh, the main characters in these books really are extremely interesting, have a great deal of depth to them and develop from the first book to the second. And they are just good old dirty fun. Very cool. And where's the best place for people to pick those up? Uh, RiverdaleAvenueBooks.com. As we said, this is kind of a continuing story, so there will be updates over at the website, projection-booth.com. So as we hear more information, I'll post it on the Facebook group. I'll post links where this episode is, probably even on the Caligula episode. So like I said, if you – I hope to God that nobody has made it this far in the episode and they haven't seen Caligula or listened to our episode about Caligula because you guys are probably totally lost. So that's on you. That's on you. So, but yeah, for people who have and who are interested, come on over projection-boot.com. You can find out more about this episode. You'll find out other episodes. You'll be able to go through all the archives, hear all the episodes with Rob, hear all the episodes with Maitland, hear all the episodes with Maitland and Rob together. Like we were saying, we're going to be doing a Suspiria episode in October. I'm really looking forward to talking about Suspiria with you guys. So come on back and be sure to check out the projection booth for all of your sundry needs.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.